0: Welcome to episode 303 with my guest Celia Finkelstein. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. I'll go there, check it out, join the forum, uh, fill out uh, an anonymous survey. Maybe we'll read your survey out loud on the show. Um, you can support the show at the, um, at the website, all kinds of stuff. Oh, and also uh, my Twitter handle uh, is at uh, mentalpod. Um, just for those of you who are wondering if uh what's been happening in our uh country in the last couple of days is going to be addressed on the podcast, it is, but I've pushed it to um after the interview so those of you that don't want to hear it um you don't have to you don't have to hear it um, I want to read an email uh from Dan, and he writes. I've been dealing with a lot of pain from my depression and anxiety to the point where I've been suicidal for some time now. I've been on and off medications, and I've been in therapy. I've learned and known some coping mechanisms for a while now, and yet I haven't been able to get myself to use any of it. It wasn't until I listened to your first audio blog that you had on the podcast that I realized it's because I believe I don't matter. I might claim I know I do to therapists and friends, but I haven't truly felt like I do. I've never been able to accept myself for who I am and how I am, so I may still not know how to deal with all of this pain yet. But listening to that gave me hope and a bit of courage to keep going and see what kind of scary and beautiful things I discover about myself to maybe change my self-perception. And I wrote him back and said thank you so much for sharing that. The audio blog he's talking about, I'm pretty sure, is the one... um, uh, where I talk about uh when I briefly grew weed uh when I was in my 20s and was obsessively playing the game Zelda um it's one of our mini episodes and uh you know the first thing that that jumped in my mind when I read his thing is um you know there's that that false belief we have especially when we're younger that whatever's happening right now is going to happen forever um and so I I wrote him back and and said um you know, the next time you're in a crowd of people, you're afraid of being judged by, or you're hating yourself. You know, just remember that you know a couple of those people that you're afraid of judging you—they were probably recently in the fetal position. Three quarter of them, uh, three quarters of them probably have a sexual fantasy that they're ashamed of, and ninety-nine percent of them believe the lie that they're a lazy fraud who isn't doing enough and wasting the life they've been given. You know, for me, life really started when I accepted that I sleep till noon, that I orgasm to thoughts I wish I didn't have and embrace whatever I'm feeling instead of wishing I was feeling differently. And if that doesn't work, I get on my knees and I kiss Herbert on his little bottom lip and I'm reminded that the universe that could create his little bottom row of baby corn teeth has to contain good in it. I didn't even mention Herbert's butthole. That, that was hard. That was hard. Uh, I want to tell you guys about our sponsor, Madison Reed. Madison Reed started with a simple mission to make luxurious at-home hair color with ingredients you can feel good about. Madison Reed is a salon-quality hair color with an authentic personal touch. They're so passionate about you loving your hair, expert colorists support you every step of the way. It brings the prestige of pampered salon experience to the time-saving, money-saving convenience of your home. It's made with ingredients you can feel good about. Madison Reed is the first-ever, six-free, permanent hair color, free of ammonia, parabens, resorcinol, PPD, phthalates, and gluten. Uh, Madison Reed delivers salon-quality color to the convenience of your home. You could be in any chair you want at home when it's being delivered. You could be in a chaise lounge. You might be on an ottoman. You might be standing on the diving board about to dive into your luxurious pool, which I resent. With 100% great coverage and the support of Madison Reed, expert colorists will guide you every step of the way, and you can color with total confidence. Experience beautiful, healthy-looking hair with over 40 shades to choose from. Our online, my teeth whistled a little bit right there, with over 40 shades to choose from, our online color quiz guarantees a 100%, 100% shade match. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Try it, love it, Satisfaction and happiness guaranteed. That's the beauty of Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-i dash guess-madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with the offer code HAPPY. And uh, by supporting our sponsors, you are in turn supporting our show very greatly because if they see that you guys are supporting our show. They will continue to advertise on our show, and um, that helps keep it going. And it can always use more help. A couple more surveys, and then we're going to get to the, uh, to the interview. This is filled out by I'm a Casualty, and uh, she writes about her anxiety. It feels like I'm racing to catch a speeding train, and everyone around me is screaming that I'm already on board. Mutter codependency, I hate you for being too honest and I hate you for saying absolutely nothing. When you're not here, I feel like I lost myself. Um, Snapshot from her life. Uh, When she's depressed, I sit in a hot bath uh, two to three times a day listening to the podcast or drinking a glass of wine to indulge in the only feeling of warmth I get all day. Then I savor the numbness of sitting on the couch afterwards as my body temperature regulates back to ice cold. You know, I, in the winter especially, when my depression is really bad, my extremities are always so fucking cold. But when my mood is good, I notice that my circulation is better. So, um, just throwing that out there. Um, and I used to have to take baths, uh, all the time in the winter just to warm my hands and feet up. Uh, A lot of people uh, partly listen to the show in one of these places, on their job, in the bath, falling asleep, working out, cleaning, or commuting. Probably other things, too. I'm sure there's some some guy out there that listens while he is waxing his mustache. Some lady who uh, listens as she adjusts the fruit in her Sunday hat. This is filled out by Mockingbird Girl, and she's a teenager, and she shares about uh, her anorexia. She writes, the other day I laid in bed and thought about killing myself, but then I realized that by not eating, I was already doing that, and I was satisfied. Elmo lives, shares about his depression, like drowning in a pool of water, but the temperature is perfect, so you don't mind. About his sex addiction, I want to live in my darkest sexual fantasies fantasies until I come and then feel ashamed for the disgusting thoughts that turn me on. My fake name gives us a snapshot of his uh, depression and anxiety. Having depression and anxiety means feeling like I need to do something this minute but not feeling motivated enough to do anything about it. I'm so relating to all of these if I'm not commenting on them. I mean, I don't I wouldn't be reading them unless I didn't think they were amazing. So, if anybody's feeling left out, oh god, Paul stop being such a people pleaser. Um, he has a question, uh more live events for your LA based audience. Question mark. Well, as, as it happens, uh this Sunday, November 13th at the Avalon in Hollywood is the In This Together Festival, and I'm doing a live recording of the podcast Uh, at four o'clock with former NBA player Royce White, who has battled, uh, anxiety for most of his life. Um, also the podcast Mortified is going to be there. Great podcast. Um, really i think a lot of the same listenership and um a lot of the same goals that the, that this podcast has and then there's music um at seven with uh, deacon sue kimya dawson of the moldy peaches and daniel johnston who was one of kurt cobain's uh favorite singer songwriters so uh for tickets and information go to uh ittfest.com um The the festival is going to be pretty cool. It's basically a mental health awareness event. Um, And um, I really hope you guys uh, come out. There's also going to be a support group room upstairs. Uh, It's going to be available to all festival goers and to the public. And um, I'm I'm really excited about this. So um, hopefully I'll see you guys this this Sunday at 4 o'clock. Moon Girl shares about being a sex crime victim. My body is his, and I can't figure out how to get it back. Snapshot from her life. When I was 21, the following things happened within months. I won a huge award at my school, got a prestigious internship, lived with hoarders, tried to kill myself, and a schizophrenic woman stole my shoes and wore them in the shower. Cannot make this shit up. And then finally from Helena. Uh, who shares uh, about her depression and anxiety. I need to find new insurance to continue therapy and meds, but I need therapy and meds to help me find new insurance. I fear that I'm inadequate. inadequate.
1: So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness
0: And uh, we have a mutual friend, I believe, Lauren Salah. Yes. Salah? Yes. Why? All of a sudden, I don't know how to pronounce my friend's last name.
1: I've been friends with her, and I don't know how to pronounce her name either. Salah. Yeah. We'll go with that.
0: Let's go with that. (laughs) Um, Who has a great uh, live show and podcast called Taboo Tales. Um, Go check it out if you never have. And listen to her episode. Her episode is. um, is is great but she uh referred you uh as a guest yeah and for the podcast i read something that you wrote and i was like i think she'd be
1: great <laughs> she's crazy
0: yes <laughs> super crazy you uh you deal with uh suicidal ideation unipolar mm-hmm. depression and mm-hmm. borderline personality disorder correct so we know you had a terrific child yes everything went just swimmingly <laughs> <laughs> where where do we start? Uh, can I ask how old
1: you are? Uh, you don't have to tell me. I'm in my thirties. Okay,
0: yeah. So you're 39.
1: That's mm-hmm. fantastic. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm actually 47. I think that's what yeah. we, that is yeah. what it means to say
0: uh, you're 30. It's probably rude that I ask everybody, but yeah. I also feel like since the podcast is a there's a part of it that documents yeah mental struggles. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe age can be an important thing.
1: I think it is. Uh, The only reason I hesitate is because of my job. I'm an actor, so I try to keep my age to myself. I
0: get it. I totally get it. Yeah.
1: But I do think it's helpful because I didn't know until much later in life that I I didn't understand what was causing all of it. These crazy behaviors, mm-hmm. so it took that's a long time,
0: especially borderline personality disorder. Yeah, that's, that's a like, fun one. <laughs> th- that strikes me. Not knowing that you have borderline personality disorder to me would be like, uh, <laughs> saying, Why is it constantly hot in the living room and not knowing the house is on fire?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good analogy. Yes, yeah, it was kind of, um, it was kind of a magical moment when I got that diagnosis and got that little pamphlet in the hospital because it explained everything up to that point.
0: And one of the hallmarks I'm told mm. of of the personality disorder is that um there's a deep fear of abandonment and there was intense childhood abandonment, not necessarily yeah. physically, but in terms of needs being met as a as a child.
1: Yeah, which I didn't really cuz my parents I mean, my mother was very much in my life, very active. My father was, my parents are divorced, so he was as active as he could be. But emotionally, yeah, they didn't, they were not meeting my needs. And I didn't realize that that is as damaging as physical abandonment is, it turns out.
0: I would love yeah. to have that taught in school. So yeah. people, people, and the, to people about to be parents.
1: Yeah, I wish it were was taught in a birthing class. I wish people knew... Not just about breathing and laws, but that you have to really be present for your children. Mm-hmm. You can't. And you have to go to bat for them. And you have to have their backs. And they have to know it. A lot I more think...
0: important than a, getting them a really cool car at 16. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's... Uh, all,
0: all it will of change the, their lives. All of the years that I've read uh, moments where uh, people had a, a, a really beautiful moment with mm-hmm. with the parent... I have yet to read one that had to do with anything materialistic and almost all of them had to have to do with that parent really seeing that child Mm -hmm. and accepting them unconditionally.
1: It's really time always. And I, I struggle sometimes to think of moments like that with both my parents when I, when people sort of say, oh, my mom's my best friend. I have this great memory. I don't have a ton of those. Um, which probably explains Mm -hmm. a
0: lot of things. (laughs) So give me some uh, snapshots of uh, your childhood that you think can paint a picture for us to understand what it was like.
1: Um, I have to say, because I, I do believe my parents are good people, I think they were not totally equipped to have a child. So I don't say this in any kind of accusatory or negative way, but you know, my parents got divorced when I was very young, my father lived in Italy for a time. And then when he came back, um, both my parents were dating and my father eventually got remarried to a person who didn't really like for us to have private time. Um, So I felt very much like, sort of left with her quite often. And he wasn't as active as maybe he could have been. Um, um, you
0: were left with her, his my step, yeah, my his stepmother, new girlfriend.
1: Mm-hmm. who eventually became my stepmother. Yeah. yeah, so I spent a lot of time alone with her, uh, and less with my not so much with my dad. And um, my, by by her choice or your dad's choice, I think it was. I learned later that I think it was her choice. It it all sort of exploded in a conversation much later. So yeah,
0: it's so weird because you would think that it would be. She wouldn't want you around so she could spend time with him, but she didn't want you to spend time with him Him. and you two spent time together.
1: Yeah, which was very... It's always struck me as very strange. How did she treat you? Um, For the most part, she was was kind to me when I was younger, and then I think some resentment set in as I got older, um, and she got older, uh, and she wasn't able to um, really just... accept me, I guess. So it sort of became more difficult as I got older. Um, natural teenage behaviors, I was impossible, combined with, as it turns out, having borderlines. So a lot of my sort of emotional, volatile behavior... Um, no one really understood, and no one knew how to deal with it, and no one sent me to a therapist to figure it out either. So she sort of grew, I think, to really not like me, and I grew to not like her, and so there were, there were a lot of clashes Can between you give, the two of us. Can you give
0: me uh, some um, moments where your behavior was volatile and describe what you were thinking and feeling when you were being volatile?
1: Um, I would scream and yell if someone made plans without consulting me like as a kid, which like, you're a kid, you're sort of up, you know, it's Mm. kind of up to everyone else. But I remember one time I got into a screaming match with my mother and slammed the door so hard that it almost came off its hinges. uh, Because she had made plans for a family dinner that but didn't consult me first.
0: Were you invited to the family? Oh,
1: yeah, I was expected to be there. um, But I didn't want to go. And she didn't discuss it with me first. And i probably would have gone, but I felt that she should have discussed. Like, as a 12, 13-year-old, it was something ridiculous like that. Those kinds of things. What do
0: you think it was that set you off about that?
1: Uh, I think it's almost always about control and feeling like people aren't um,
0: considering
1: you? Considering or hearing me, listening to what I have to say.
0: Feeling invisible? Yeah. Is that a big fear of yours?
1: That's a big fear of mine. And it's a big thing that happened, I think, early on. That sort of sense that I wasn't uh, worthy of attention.
0: Is there a voice yeah. inside you that tells you if people really get to know you, they'll leave you?
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah.
0: Does it have an accent?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but going forward, it will. I'm going to think of it <laughs> in, in an Australian nice accent it, now. Uh, I'm I mean, thinking European. Yeah. Or like, yeah, French or maybe like I'm thinking German. Alsace. <laughs> yes. Alsace-Lorraine.
0: <laughs> We'll hit a, German, yeah, little a little hit of German. Yeah.
1: A little French. A little combo. Yeah. Be, that'd be lovely. Yeah. I wish it did. No, there, it's a constant voice that if someone knew about me, um, they would leave. They will leave. And it's it's something I struggle with uh, all of the time. Because I, what I learned, I've been in therapy now for Borderline for two years. And what I learned is that I create situations where I give them almost no other option.
0: Corner, so corner I, I corner emotionally. people
1: emotionally. I I am so terrified that they're going to leave that I make them. I make it impossible to be to be around me. Um, yeah, I make it really hard on people.
0: Wow, that 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 sounds.
1: <laughs> or I um, should say, I have in the past made it hard on people. I'm trying really hard not to do. that Do you feel like anymore. you're
0: making progress?
1: I do. I feel like um, relationships are very difficult for me, and I just. I was in one that just ended a couple of months ago, and I think, for me, th- this was probably the one where I was closest to getting it right in terms of um, not creating drama, not constantly having to check in, trying to trust that, that I was safe and that he was present and that I was safe to state my needs and um, and he wouldn't leave. Uh, he (laughs) laughed. Um, but it does feel like one where I was, uh, I, I did it right this time. What's that feel like then? It, well, it feel, it felt really good in the moment. It's really hard. It post breakup because there's a sense that like, but I did it right. It should have worked out. Um, so I've, I've been struggling with that sort of like, sometimes you can be right, or good, or good enough, or whatever, and it still doesn't work out. And uh, I think because for so long I blamed myself for those relationships falling apart. Um, because I would behave so badly this time I didn't. And I was like, Mm -hmm. but why it still fell apart. I don't understand. So the
0: the way I look at it is it's really, it's just chemistry. It's like maybe one was mustard and the other was ice cream on their own. They're (laughs) both awesome, but they're just, yeah, maybe mustard needed ketchup and ice cream needed fudge.
1: Maybe. Or
0: you're a terrible person. I think that's that's the
1: correct answer, I
0: think. The the answer you're looking for? Let me go ahead and sign off on that. Yeah, we're done. Okay. Did you have, uh, or do you have any anxieties about uh, doing this? Doing this podcast? Oh, a lot. I have a lot of anxieties. Talk talk about them.
1: Um, I think, I've talked a lot about, uh, I think the story that I told at Taboo Tales was um, about my stay in the psychiatric hospital when I was... Uh, suicidal, and I talked. I've talked about that publicly. I've talked about borderline publicly. My what was difficult about sharing that story, and what is difficult about being here with you now is that I feel fully in a like depressive episode at the moment in my oh. life. So I feel very naked sharing that. I also sort of feel very anxious about um, uh, not being funny enough, or being too dark, or depressing people (laughs) with what's going on. Um, I'm a little scared of revealing too much. I'm scared that something I say might hurt someone.
0: Well, I can I alway, think those are I, all the. I, I can always edit things out afterwards. Sure. And there's nothing too dark. Okay. For the podcast. Good. Uh, your energy is great, <laughs> okay. and I love the fact that you're fucked up right
1: now. So Hooray! <laughs> hey!
0: We're we're all good. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry that you're you're in a trough. Um, Thank you. Uh,
1: I mean it's it's a strange one. I th- I mean I, it's. It's a long one. It feels like a long one. How long's it been? It's been two and a half months, okay. which feels like a long slog.
0: And describe how your depression uh, presents itself, manifests.
1: Um, in, I. It's almost always, almost always, I have repetitive thoughts of suicide. Uh, I can't do my dishes. Um, that's how I. Feel first real, like, that's when I first realized it was getting bad, was when I went into my kitchen and I realized that my dishes had piled up over a couple of weeks. Uh, I can't watch, I can only watch the same show on repeat. I can't watch other shows, so I watch, and they're usually shows like um, crime shows, or like the latest was Murder, She Wrote, mm-hmm. something that is formulaic and requires nothing of me, no emotional that's investment. Um, and specifically, like, crime shows, like Criminal Minds was the one that I watched after the uh, psychiatric hospital the darker the better uh
0: do you like the wire
1: i haven't watched the wire because oh. that required i have it i a friend oh, of mine not, lent it to me it's yeah, not formulaic to me actually and i have it sitting on my on my coffee table and i haven't gotten to it yet because it's it it requires a lot
0: it requires a tremendous amount. Yeah. it's it's you got to put a lot of uh, two and two together. <laughs> they don't hand everything to you. Yeah, and which
1: normally I love. Right, what, but in this particular moment, it's very hard for me to receive a lot of information.
0: What do you think? It. Is that why the something being formulaic is comforting to you? Because it's it's just numbing.
1: Yeah, I know what's coming. I don't have to be concerned or emotionally invested in it because I I already know how it's going to play out. So
0: it's kind of white noise.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's on 24 hours a day, so it is white noise.
0: Do you, when you're in that place, um, do do you ever feel like uh, your borderline personality disorder and your unipolar depression overlap uh, where maybe you get in that trough Mm -hmm. and you think of... um, self-harm not not necessarily hurting yourself to end your life but hurting yourself to uh numb or let go of the pain
1: absolutely it is the thing that uh and i i haven't but it is the thing that next to suicidal ideation comforts me the most the thought that like there's some sort of physical release to it um i've done it i i think uh I get tattoos sometimes as a way of sort of like a sanctioned way of
0: mm-hmm.
1: releasing that pain. Um, so I have five of
0: those. <laughs> what happens when you run out of space? I know. What am I going to do? a lot of way to go.
1: I do. I got plenty of space. It's fine. Um,
0: eventually you just be in there going, well, I guess you put a picture of a couch yeah. on my eyelid. <laughs>
1: exactly. Can you do inside the nostril? Yeah. Is that, um, but yes, absolutely, there is a, I think also, um, for me, the borderline, I don't tend to, I don't tend to be a person who lashes out at others. Like, I don't experience a lot of anger with my borderline so much. I did as a kid, but not so much as an adult. It's all directed inward. So, it, the depression and the borderline, like, it creates just this... Horrific emotional pit of sadness mm. that um, I th- I feel like I've heard and read more about borderline. Some people experience it in sort of an, an outward way, and I really don't. Mine uh, goes all inside.
0: I, that, that's interesting to know because I, I I didn't know. I always thought thought that uh, borderline um, manifested itself in lashing out. Yeah, and
1: I mean it does. Like it can. It, it can, and I have. Okay, uh, but I th- and I wonder actually. Now that I'm saying that, I wonder if it's if it if it's been since I got the diagnosis that that has tended to be the case I because see. I am conscious of it now. Actually, now that I'm saying that, I Someone wonder if that's that why. Yeah,
0: steam being let In- off—it's you're burning up from mm-hmm. the from the inside. Yeah, <laughs> sounds it's, fantastic. It's great. Yeah.
1: It's funny that you say that because I always when people ask me about suicide or when I talk about suicide, I always reference that um, David Foster Wallace uh passage i don't even know what it's from actually about being in a burning building and the suicidal person doesn't want to doesn't necessarily want to jump but the fire is too much and yeah. that, that's exactly it feels like a burning feels like a burning house
0: yeah i I've, I've never been angry at somebody for committing suicide i no. i so get it
1: i it always i i get angry when people get angry yeah. i remember um, I mean, I know that there's more information now about Robin Williams, but when it first, when it when he first died, uh, uh, several people, you know, sort of posted on Facebook how selfish and, um, and he was so popular and he had so many fans, and I was like, you have no clue what it's like to live with that kind of pain every day of your life. I don't fault anyone. In fact, mad props for sticking around as long as you have, mm-hmm. because it is the most pain. I can't imagine a more painful existence. I mean not a prisoner of war, but, like, to wake up every morning not knowing when you're going to feel better and feeling like there is no relief from the sadness.
0: I, and everything is an effort. That's and the part, everything is an effort. That's the part of depression that gets so – and then when the, the color goes out of yeah. everything – and, and That's you're like, thing. when am I when am I going to feel excitement? When am I going to feel <laughs> joy? Again? That is
1: the thing that I I struggle with the most. Is is this ever going to feel? Am I ever going to feel better? Mm-hmm. Am I ever going to feel good? Is is anything ever going to not sort of have that
0: mm-hmm. emotional prophylactic yeah. over it? You know. Have you tried punching baby rabbits?
1: Um, I like to, like, burn them. Is that wrong? Um,
0: no. <laughs> no, I never thought of that. I have to get my hands dirty. Yeah. <laughs> you got to go really dark. Go. You know what, the, what? Speaking of animals, though, mm-hmm. something that that never fails to eh, just help me a tiny bit is looking at footage of baby animals. Oh, of, I, yeah, I do all the time. Especially puppies. Mm-hmm. It. Uh, and for some reason, I never seek it out. My wife will show me something. I'll be like, oh, that's so adorable. But I yeah. never I never think to... I'm, I'm always like, let's see if there's a new David Berkowitz documentary. <laughs> Do you find what? comfort in things that are uh, super, super dark? Super awful. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. Me, yeah. Talk about that. Um,
1: I mean, I... Uh, a friend of mine just said this to me the other day because I he asked how my day was and I was like oh I just watched a bunch of super depressing documentaries and he was like it feels like sometimes you do it to yourself and I understand where he was coming from um but those things for whatever reason I don't know why I don't know why they comfort me but they do and they don't make it worse
0: not to me at all not, it's, not ever I find them comforting it I think it's it's like you're in the darkness, and it's nice to know that yours isn't, isn't the only darkness. Yeah, it's true. And and I also like it because you know how their voice beats us up when we're when we're in that in that dark place. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I watch a thing about a serial killer, and I'm like. Okay, I can't do the dishes. I'm, I'm not moving my career <laughs> forward. I'm not Right. I'm not shooting people in their cars. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I've never, y- yay
1: me. Yeah, I've never like killed and eaten anyone. Yeah. So, I feel like I'm nailing it. And I, yeah. I,
0: I also feel like um, having an addictive nature, I I view almost all darkness and Immoral behavior, I think the majority of it comes from a place of compulsion where people intellectually know mm-hmm. that this is not the right thing to do, but something inside them is pushing that. And because I've struggled with drugs and alcohol and pornography and stuff mm-hmm. like that, I, I can look at a serial killer and, and feel like there but for the grace of God goes I. Yep. My thing was beer mm-hmm. and his thing is killing hookers. Yeah. <laughs> You know, maybe I will get to those dishes.
1: Right. No, I actually, I feel very similarly. I think about this a lot as an actor, too. I really, I feel very, since my nervous breakdown, which is just sort of how I refer to it, I I find myself incapable of judgment. And I find that, yes, when I watch those people, I actually get it on some level. I think Compulsion, pain—I think all of that comes from those places.
0: I don't. Yes, and that's not to let them off the hook. No, you know, to say that ju- you know, not justice should still be swift and harsh. But, Absolutely, but there should be compassion also.
1: But we have to—we have to have compassion for each other. I can't—I can't—I can't request compassion for myself if I'm not giving it to yeah. others. So. If if I want someone to give me a break when I'm behaving badly, which I have done and probably will do again, probably this month, then I have to be able to give it to others, I, I, in every way. Mm. I think. Um, I was going to ask if that was some if the the sort of interest in like serial killers or anything was that is that something that's always been the case for you?
0: Yeah, yeah, it has been, um, and especially now with with access to the internet and documentaries. Mm. Uh, I remember. Really anything dark. Like, I remember being depressed and seeing that there was a documentary about uh, the band Joy Division, and f- it felt like like a nurse came up and put a warm blanket around me and gave me cocoa, because I knew for the next hour and a half, I was going to be watching something involving kindred yeah. spirits. Yeah. That's, Yeah. And I think also knowing, you know, that that kind of terrible thing about comparing my darkness to somebody else's is knowing he kills himself at the end, right. and I didn't. Right. Sorry to yeah. ruin that for anybody, but yeah, anybody who's a fan of Joy Division knows <laughs> that he kills himself at the end. That's true. But, um, I
1: feel the same way. I was reading Stephen King at, when I was seven, and true crime books were my favorite. And I, someone, you know, the OJ show is happening right now, someone was just asking me about that i was like yeah i was glued to that all of that stuff all of the grisly stuff uh, as a kid i was glued to it and, I, and
0: it still comforts me do you think there's a relationship between somebody's interest in and this thought just popped in my mind mm. as we were talking about between somebody's interest in darkness and people who have an interest in dark things sexually uh, you know pain and stuff like that because i i don't i don't have any interest uh-huh. in that stuff uh sexually in pain okay. or inflicting pain mm-hmm. or having pain inflicted on me um yet i enjoy these right. these other things i'm i'm not asking you to weigh in personally oh, no. about yourself i'm just
1: i mean i th- i actually i mean i used to work in a sex shop so I, there's nothing that shocks me and i i would say I don't know the answer to that. I think it's so individual because I uh I mean like
0: personally
1: light pain is never bad, but mm-hmm. like I'm not into you
0: can't sit like, down for a week. Can't leap. sit
1: down. Yeah, yeah, or like bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um but like spanking or something is not yeah. a big deal. But I I wonder actually I I wonder if it's actually the opposite in my experience the people that you would never expect to be into those really dark kinky things are the ones who really are like when when i worked in the sex shop and people would come in it was always the one who was like reminded me my third grade teacher who would come in and ask for like the chains Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i was always like that's Fascinating
0: to me, and there's also that stereotype—a stereotype about the, the CEO mm-hmm. who has control all day long that who wants doesn't to be, want it. Who, yeah. who wants to get off where he, he has no control or Which she has no control?
1: I think is ac- I mean, I in my experience, I think it's pretty accurate. Like, I think that's a pretty accurate. I guess that
0: would make sense that uh, you know the bedroom would be the place where uh, we we want what we yeah. maybe feel like is lacking in our life, but in a sexualized way, yeah, that makes sense.
1: I think. I mean, if I if I'm thinking back, like my tastes in sex have changed based on whatever my mental state was. So, like, if I was feeling safe and happy in a relationship, I didn't really want. I was perfectly happy with, like, very easy sort of vanilla sex. If I was feeling more volatile, the sex would become more volatile.
0: Really?
1: Yeah. And if my partner was... I had a really volatile partner for a while, and he would, like... The sex would get very intense.
0: And was it more <clears> pleasurable <throat> when it was intense? Or it was just really the same as it was when it was vanilla?
1: Um, Different kinds of pleasure. Like, the... Yeah, it was just different kinds of pleasure. I think some one was more maybe visceral, visceral, and one was more emotional. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah, that does make so, sense.
1: Yeah, I, I also
0: find that shame um, can be a turbocharger for or around uh, sex. Yeah, something we struggle with the, the shame around. There, somebody wrote a book. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, he had this theory that. Um The more hurdles there are to accepting some part of our sexuality that that 's what ratchets the excitement up that those
1: I, yeah, that makes sense to me yeah. I mean having watched people at work, sort of like couples that I talk to at work or single people that I talk to at work, and my own yeah my own um uh struggles with shame i I used to weigh three hundred pounds so I had a lot of body shame um mm-hmm. and i was married very young and so like when i got divorced that was my first experience with dating and having multiple sexual partners and it really did like getting at, over at,
0: that shame really at, did. at one time or
1: oh no just i mean like um dating dating guys. multiple people gotcha. and uh sort of having um you know like casual Casual sex, safe, safe as, you know, as safe as possible, but yeah. By
0: your own choice, or do you feel like you were trying to fill some uh, emptiness?
1: Probably a little bit of both. I deliberately, I was, I got divorced and I started seeing someone right after, and then that turned into a very like weird, complicated relationship that ended about a year later. And that was when I, I also had back surgery at the time, and that was when I went into the psychiatric hospital. So... I was, I had a plan, I was going to kill myself, I was ready to do it, and then I happened to mention suicide notes to a friend, and she took everything out of my house, and I checked myself in the next day. Um, when I came out of the hospital... Did,
0: did she kind of guide you towards checking yourself in? Would it, or, I don't or know.
1: I actually don't know what happened sort of behind the scenes, but was I... It, had, was it voluntary, I guess? It that's was voluntary. I, okay. Uh, She took me to the hospital for a um, follow up appointment for my back surgery. And while we were sitting there with the doctor, she said she made a joke about suicide notes. And I'm concerned about her. I had dropped about 25 pounds at that point. The doctor was like, yeah, I've noticed that things are not okay." Um, So he told her that when she took me home because I couldn't drive, I was still recovering. uh, He told her to take all the pills out, all the alcohol and all all my knives, which she did. So she left me with no tools. Uh, And then the next day, a friend, there there was someone coming every day to take me to lunch and take care of my cats and do things that I couldn't do. And so the very next day, um, another friend, Clay, came to take me to lunch. And when he tried to ask me how I was, I couldn't, I just started to cry. And he said, do you think it's time to go to the hospital? So I don't know, because that time is such a fog. Because I also, I had become hooked on opiates because of the back pain and, I don't remember very much of anything. And um, so I don't know if they had discussed, if Tess and Clay had discussed me going to a hospital. And I don't know if she would contacted him about it or if I had brought it up. I have no clue where the conversation came from. But he said, do you think it's time to go to the hospital? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes. And good for you. that afternoon he drove me. We made this like hour-long trek from Los Feliz to uh, Westwood, and I checked myself in to UCLA that afternoon. So, and then he sat in the ER with me until they took me upstairs. What a good <clears throat> friend. Yeah, he's a very good friend.
0: Um, before we get to the uh, psychiatrics mm-hmm. day, uh, let's talk about more about your childhood. Sure. Um, give us some more moments from childhood that you think are emblematic of either your family, or um, who you were, maybe uh, maybe a moment that was pivotal, that was beautiful, that um...
1: That's interesting because I was trying to think of memories and I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood. Things that I remember are um, mainly feeling like I didn't fit. Uh, I was always overweight, which was a real problem. For a lot of people in my family, so my weight was constantly discussed, um, and not in a kind way. And no one ever like came came to my aid and said, "Hey, that's an unacceptable way to talk to a kid." Everyone just sort of allowed it to happen.
0: Give me give me some examples of things that were said or might have been said.
1: Um, I remember once I was shopping with my grandmother, and we were in. Lane Bryant, because that was all I could fit into, and I hated it. And I said, I hate it. Uh, And she said, well, if you would drop 50 pounds, we wouldn't have to shop here. Um, I became a lifetime member of Weight Watchers at 10 years old.
0: By your own choice?
1: No. I mean, apparently I said that I wanted to go on a diet. uh, And my mother, the only diet she knew of at that point was Weight Watchers. And so she took me in. And I remember being weighed in at 10 years old in front of like all these middle-aged women um i remember that uh i was singled out on a school field trip everyone got ice cream and i didn't because my teacher had been told i was on a diet and i wasn't allowed to have any um
0: what did that feel like
1: oh god garbage i mean you're totally i was already being made fun of and already bullied uh and then to be singled out that way and not to uh, Again, this sort of goes back, actually, to the lack of control or not being heard. No one discussed that with me. Like, no one said, hey, this is what's going to happen, or um, I'm going to talk to your teacher about this. It was just a thing that was sprung on me, which is a pretty consistent theme um, in my childhood, that things were just sort of done, and then I would sort of experience whatever the fallout was and not have been able to participate in the discussion of it.
0: And you don't know that that's not right? Right. To be talked to that way. Yeah. To be objectified in that way. You know, there's sexual objectification Mm -hmm. and then there's just, you're an object to Mm -hmm. me and you're not presentable for this family. Yeah.
1: Which was, which, it was interesting because my cousin is very beautiful. And um, for some reason, we were sort of cast as the beautiful one and the smart one. Um, And she's very smart. (laughs) Uh, and so we, we sort of felt very separate from each other because we were cast in these roles. And so I was always always treated as the intellectual, but not the pretty one, not the attractive one. There was always just sort of like this feeling that I didn't quite belong in a family that is very Southern and very concerned with appearance. And, um, and I never quite felt at home in my family or in my body. And, uh, I think... And I felt very sort of not seen. Or like, you're a value if you, you change. You could just We'll love up. you if you would get your shit together. Uh, which I know intellectually is not the case. Because I think what's also been important for me to learn is that we all have our own pathologies, right? So, like, it's not... They weren't doing it out of malice. They were doing it because they didn't know any better. They didn't they know what else to They probably thought they were
0: protecting you from... Society's meanness, yeah, and judgment,
1: exactly. And I don't think anyone realized that, it in fact, they were making it worse. Uh, that the way to handle it would have been the, a different way to handle a different way of handling it would have been healthier, and probably resulted in me
0: not weighing three hundred pounds. I wonder if it would be fair to say that when you know when your child is veering into a direction that you think might be unhealthy. Um, to, to maybe try to build their self esteem.
1: Yeah, I it's, mean, I think
0: w- I, I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a yeah. psychologist, and I'm not a parent. But I am neither. Let's. I wonder if we should try giving that a shot. And, yeah, and see if if that works with kids.
1: I think I I really firmly I, I'm not a parent. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I'm not even really an aunt. But I I I really firmly firmly believe that. Kids express their pain, or you know, when a kid is having a tantrum or something, it's because they feel not understood, not seen. And I think that when that manifests in a, in a in a weight issue or some sort of physical issue, it's up to the parents and the adults in their lives to step in and say, "You're loved. I see you. Let's. How can we fix this?" But not in a way that ever makes that kid feel like they're doing something wrong. Yeah. I think that shame for me developed really early because it felt like I was doing something really wrong and I didn't understand what I was doing. Some of it was just, it's the nature of, you know, my family, what we were eating, not, I wasn't really an active kid. Um, uh, And some of it was genetics. My whole family deals with weight issues. So I, I, no one said, we can help you Mm. everyone just sort of said
0: stop eating so much
1: yeah and i don't know how 10 you stop eating so you know but i also i I do remember this i ate a half of a sheet cake (laughs) one time it was my birthday and the it was a baskin robbins ice cream cake and it was in the freezer and my mom and stepdad had gone out for the night and like sliver by sliver i ate that cake and Instead of saying, hey, you just ate a whole sheet cake, we should discuss this. My mom was like, did you try to hide the evidence? You should have just thrown it in the back. And that's always struck me. I brought that up in therapy to her years later. I was like, that seemed so strange to me that you didn't stop and go.
0: What are you, what's going on? What's going
1: on? You're 11. Why did you eat a half of a sheet cake in one night?
0: um i'm gonna say because baskin robbins makes really good real ice cream good. cake. i love ice cream cake ice cream cake is I'm the not best that, i'm not that big of, of of a fan of cake cake oh really But ice cream cake
1: cake is my favorite food is like it? the way that like joey on friends his favorite food is sandwiches like any cake i'll eat it i love mm. them all um but ice cream cake has a special place in my heart part, mostly because of the frosting i think it's great mm. <laughs> big fan. uh where
0: were you raised
1: um, Pensacola, Florida. I was uh, born in Tallahassee, raised in Pensacola, Florida. And I lived there until I went to college in Orlando. And so, uh,
0: how many kids in your family? Just me. Just you?
1: Yeah. Um, we had a we had a sort of very close, some might say enmeshed family. Uh, my grandparents owned a men's clothing store, and my mother worked there, and my uncle worked across the street. So very frequently, like two or three nights a week, we would all have dinner together, and we saw each other all the time. And... Um, my cousins and I were raised as close to siblings as you can be in that kind okay. of situation. So we were all really tight.
0: Um, any other snapshots from childhood or adolescence? I'm trying to think. i just going to adjust your mic a tiny bit. Sure. Oh, sorry. That's right.
1: um, I'm trying to, I mean, there are so, it's interesting because I, I remember that I started dyeing my hair a bunch of different colors, which everyone registered their displeasure about. But the thing that finally I'll say something I'll say something good. I feel like I've been really sad, a down a big downer. No yeah. Um but when I found acting, that was the thing that shifted everything for me. I started doing a friend of mine dragged me into an acting class in the sixth grade and I remember doing a monologue and I um I forgot my lines halfway through and I ran off crying and my teacher was backstage and she said, you got to go back and do it. You got to finish it. And I did. I went back on stage and finished it. And that was, um, the first time that people at school who had been really mean to me up to that point were nice to me. And they came up and told me that I was good at something. And it sort of began friendships for me. Um, it's interesting now when they like friend me on Facebook and I'm like, you're so mean to me when we were 12. Now we're (laughs) friends on Facebook Um, because maybe I've been on TV. So that shifted things for me. And then finding the theater um, in high school and my teacher in high school really sort of helped me make it through Uh, because that was a place where I could um, have purple hair or wear flannel and Doc martens and no one cared or um say outrageous things and it was sort of celebrated as opposed to mocked um that's where i started to find my humor and my voice. i would voice. imagine
0: the theater and music departments of high schools probably saved more lives than they will ever realize i and think that's art departments
1: i think that's really true yeah i i i firmly believe that there's a friend i'm a friend i made when i was 12 um, in the community theater is still one of the closest friends I I have and it's not hyperbolic to say that he saved my life in high school just by being a human being in my world Um, and I still feel I told him recently actually I was like it's interesting I always feel like you have my back even when we haven't spoken in six months he lives in Berlin and so sometimes we don't always get to catch up and Uh, it just, I, just because of our history, I know that he is, has my back all the time and the feeling is mutual. I mean, I I also have his, but it's, a it is the place where I found the people who make me feel the safest and, and that continues to be true. I have never met someone who isn't in this business or isn't a performer who doesn't make me feel safe and cared for.
0: There's something about the camaraderie, too, of um, being in an ensemble. Mm-hmm. you assuming it's a healthy ensemble. Yeah. Um, there's something so... I suppose anything that has a common goal, um, but especially when it involves creativity mm-hmm. um, that I love so much. I just played uh, hockey tonight with... with uh, a team of guys that i've been playing with um for 20, 20 years and um there's sometimes i just think this is it doesn't get any better than this because yeah we got each other's backs mm-hmm. when we're out there you know we we guys are like one guy on our team took four penalties in a row and was just, he was furious and he was losing his mind and we're calming him down. And it's, even though the stakes aren't anything, Mm -hmm. it's still a microcosm of life for the next hour. You're trying to achieve this thing and you know, everybody's personalities. And, and I suppose there's also that, um, I just love when you tap gloves with each other Mm -hmm. after somebody makes a good play. And, um, it's, there's just nothing like that that joint effort.
1: It's true. I um, I think of it um as an improviser
0: uh and I, I mean which is a super intimate way. It is. to and relate to other people
1: when you're on a team you really have to have a group mind and the first lesson i learned in my first improv class was um everyone is a genius you have to treat everyone like a genius and also uh, obviously yes and and you have to have each other's backs mm-hmm. whatever happens you have to say yes you don't get to shut each other down and uh it is the most valuable lesson i've taken with me from improv in general because i think when we sort of come into the When we come into the world that way, where we sort of greet people with, I've got your back, you're a genius, I'm going to assume that we're all operating at our highest level, you're going to get people who are operating at their highest level, that's how you're going to experience them. And yeah, that sort of moment of like, we did that together, you saved me, I saved you, whatever it is, is there's nothing like it. It's... Yeah, Joyous. Imp-
0: improv is such a great place to learn acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it actually really helped me. Uh, you know, I went through the Second City tr- uh, mm-hmm. training program, and then I went off to do stand-up. Um, and then when I started working in TV, um, the, I, I did this TV show that was largely improvised. And I really butted heads with my co-host, and it drove me crazy for like the first eight episodes uh, I would almost have to drink myself silly when I would come home at night because yeah. it wasn't how I thought it should have been in my mind and then I remembered what they <laughs> taught me at Second City yeah. which was use what you are given. Yeah. It's the it's the essence of improv. Yeah. And so once I accepted that and thought how can I make the best of this that gave the show its chemistry. And what a great yeah. What a great lesson that that
1: Oh, that's a life lesson right there like i just had a moment where i was like oh right use what you're given you can't create a situation um
0: you can't control you other can't people. control
1: anything you can't make anyone do anything you they're not they don't want to do you just have to take what you're given and accept it i love that term radical acceptance this idea that you just mm-hmm. have to accept all of it and you can't whatever it is you have to just say yes to it which is improv as well yeah
0: now would you say that <clears throat> you're talking about the things that you don't have any control yeah over? Yeah. yeah because i mean if,
1: i mean obviously there are certain things you have somebody yeah. slaps
0: you and right. says then give me all your yeah, money you know you're not give just me. like
1: okay <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. no no i mean those things like uh someone leaving when you don't want them to leave or the thing yeah losing a job things you mm-hmm. don't have any control over
0: yeah. and i think that the thing um that comes with age is that you live through enough disappointments to see that they had to happen for something even better to come along? And when I see kids mm-hmm. or read emails from kids or surveys they fill out for the show, where they they don't have that that experience right. yet, um, I just want to reach reach out and hug them and say, yeah. <laughs> It's it's gonna be okay. You just gotta be patient with yourself. Yeah and you'll find you you'll find your tribe hopefully at some place. So it's it's fair to say that your refuge was acting and being creative Absolutely. and being around creative people.
1: Absolutely. It was the thing that I felt gave me the most um value as a human being. And I remember actually very clearly, because I once I figured it out and I figured out that was how people that was how I could get people to love me.
0: Mm-hmm
1: was because I was good at it. Um
0: was the sign that said please love me not working out.
1: Yeah, no one really like liked my sign or read mm. it or cared about it. They also didn't like my constant crying and begging for the love. <laughs> that was weird too. I've never seen someone pick it on their knees. That <laughs> <It, it> was <laughs> I really go deep. I go yeah. far. Yeah. Um yeah, once I figured out that was how people would love me, I went full bore into it and I studied in new york and i studied in london and i did plays constantly and in college i was almost always doing the main stage and the the black box theater and i would stage manage and i would do whatever i could do and i remember one day we did these like sophomore reviews so at the end of your sophomore year you would get an evaluation and one of my teachers uh he said you know you're a good person you don't have to do all this stuff
0: wow he saw (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: He saw right yeah. into your beautiful core.
1: Yeah. And he continues to. He's one of those people that's very strange like um he'll send me a text or an email or a message or something just when I need it but didn't know I needed it. And it'll just be a sort of, "Hey, just letting you know you're okay." And but that's exa- that was that moment and I of course just collapsed onto the floor um weeping when he said that because it was the first time I I realized that I was of value without all of this other stuff. And then I remember very clearly that summer I went to a fat farm um, and uh, people there liked me and didn't care that I was an actor. Like they had never seen me act. They didn't care what I was doing. You know, no one's acting at the fat farm. So they all just liked me. And th- those two moments were sort of seminal in my beginning to learn that maybe i have worth outside of this
0: out of anything um, you do yeah out of any way you look yeah you just are
1: that maybe i might be lovable that was i mean and that was a tiny germ i don't know why i'm doing hand gesture on a podcast but that was a very tiny germ that um that didn't really take hold for for many years Mm -hmm. but it was the first moment where i thought oh maybe i don't have to push myself so hard Because I really was, in college, the one who was up all night Mm. working on shows, working on rehearsing. Um, I finished all my classes a year early. uh, And I ended up spending, like, the second semester of my sophomore or senior year doing, like, a thesis that I didn't really need to do, but I wanted to. Um, I just worked so hard because I thought that was the only way that anyone would.
0: That is its own special prison, thinking that you need to be exceptional to be loved. Mm. That is
1: and it's a thing with border. i mean it's a hallmark of borderline this sort of sense of not having a a sense of self
0: Mm -hmm.
1: without external things so that was how i built my castle in a way was that i'm worthy because i'm a good actor i'm worthy because i work hard i'm worthy because uh i'm look at me working so hard that i'm like collapsing in front of you look at how dedicated i am and then my relationship also, I'm worthy because I have this person who loves me. So um when all of that goes away, it's very hard to maintain it because you don't have a core. I don't ha- I don't have a core or I'm working on building a core um that is a value or that feels like I am of value to people without all those things. Isn't it
0: amazing how other people can see our core and mm-hmm. we and we can't?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting because I I think about that. Relationships are constantly on my mind because I think they're the thing I struggle with the most. My borderline, my bad borderline personality behaviors manifest most often in relationships. It's very difficult for me to maintain. I think about them a lot. And I think in my last couple, uh, I saw very clearly this sort of beautiful human in front of me and they could not see themselves that way. And I wonder, it's interesting because I don't see myself that way. And I wonder why it's so easy for all of us to sort of not res- not understand that about um- ourselves, but absolutely see it in other people.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I
1: don't know. I asked my therapist one time how people learn to love each other. And she was like, oh my God, if I knew I would be rich. And then we talked about <laughs> avocado tacos. <laughs>
0: so um yeah so let's are are we skipping over anything before we get to um i mean it's a big
1: bag of stuff yeah because i i started i mean i guess like i my first i went to the college counselor about my eating issues and she when i met her she was she said oh no this is a way deeper problem and she referred mm-hmm. me to a psychiatrist so that was the first time i was where did you go to school by the way rollins college okay um and she referred me to someone who said no you, you have major depression was what they called it and um and so they put me on medication and i went to that doctor off and on for four years i would disappear mm-hmm. uh when i felt better or really bad <laughs> <laughs> go off my medicine difficult. go on and off my medicine i spent about a year cutting myself every day when i was 21 um and so that that time was the time where i realized okay so i have depression that's fine like fine but i no one knew borderline until much later, because they couldn't establish a pattern of behavior up
0: to that point. A talk about how the cutting uh, related to your depression. Would it jolt you out of your depressive state for a while, or did it just it, give you something? Uh, help me understand.
1: It's a for me. It's a way of sort of releasing. I uh, releasing whatever emotional pain is happening. It just creates a physical pain instead. I think and when the physical
0: pain goes away is the emotional pain lessened
1: in the moment the emotional pain is lessened and a talk a doctor told me it's because actually you are releasing endorphins when you're yeah. cutting yourself there's actual there's a release of sort of the pleasant uh, chemical so <clears throat> that's part of it there's a there's a comfort in the scars for me. Like there was a, com- there would be a comfort. That's, that, that
0: is so going into the opening montage of next year. <laughs> there's a comfort in scars for me. That is. It's true. That is a T-shirt. Um, there's a
1: comfort in the scabbing over. Um, Do you pick at the scabs? I don't. I like to just. So you're lazy. I'm lazy. I I don't really want to clean up more mess. Yeah. Um, but I like the feeling of the scabs. I liked the texture. So I would touch those a lot. Like I would. Where where would you
0: typically cut yourself?
1: Usually, my arms or my upper thighs. Mm -hmm. I um, those were mostly hidden from view, so I would do it there. Um, I also think, to some degree, because I told people at a certain point, I started telling people, and it was really a desperate act, you know cry for help for someone to to pay attention and
0: um, the the cutting or the telling them
1: the telling them i mean the cutting was its own thing but then i remember saying to someone like look what i did (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh their response was if you need some time to yourself you should take it but there wasn't any sort of like we should discuss this or yeah. the, no What's one knew, going on. Inside? Yeah. No one knew how to handle it, but it was really me trying to say, could someone please throw me a life raft or something? Because I felt like I was drowning and I didn't know what else to do, but no one knew how to help me. And I didn't know how to articulate what I needed. Um, But yeah, for me, the, the cutting is a release. It's a release and it creates a, a physical mark um, for the emotional pain, which is probably why it's now turned into like tattoos, mm-hmm. that that's now a a lasting mark of something that um, changed me, because they're all they all mm-hmm. come from a they all have a story. They they all come from the end of something actually. Interestingly,
0: I had a terrible uh, toothache uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, it felt the endorphins from it were fantastic. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that's why I was feeling high yeah but uh yeah it's crazy (laughs) crazy.
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i'm almost never sad about some sort of pain i'm like oh that's interesting okay um but that's probably the then i got married and then we would fight and i was very um i would hang on to things things were very difficult for me i would get angry uh at a moment's notice um we had a sort of difficult relationship but eventually it just kind of died like it just kind of fizzled and then um took me a long time to actually leave that marriage i was the one who instigated the divorce and it just took me a very long time to leave it because i couldn't bear the thought of being alone i didn't want to hurt him i didn't understand how to do i was not kind to him in that process um but i think that i reached a sort of level of stability while i was with him because i felt worthy i have felt like i had a you know i had a partner this so this person's
0: in my house i yeah, must be worth something i must be worth something
1: uh he's sticking around and we were sort of a couple we were the first of our friends to get married and we like threw three theme parties and we had like a nice apartment and um, we had cats and post, posted photos of, of us on Facebook looking very happy. And so that sort of gave me the sense that everything was okay until it wasn't.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so that's, I think that gets us up to the psychiatric okay. hospital. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So. And then should I just tell you that? Yeah. Or? <laughs> um, so I... Yeah, I had... Hold on, let me put on some oh.
0: psychiatric hospital music. Yeah, is
1: there a, <laughs> is a cuckoo's nest theme? Is that what's going to... Um, I mean, I, everything seemed to be going fine in my life, if I'm lying to
0: myself. And you were divor- lying to divorced myself. at this point?
1: Yeah, I was... Well, the divorce was still in, like, process in the courts, but That's we fair. the papers were filed and everything had been... I mean, we were clearly not living together anymore. We were divorce. We were divorcing. It's just, I think that this was mostly in the six month waiting period in between. Um, I had started dating someone. We were dating, things got very complicated and weird. Uh, it was in a very emotional relationship, but not always romantic, but it was a relationship. And it came to an end at the same time that I had back surgery, which happened because I literally woke up one morning and couldn't move. There was no injury. There was no accident. There was no fall. Um, The day before, I had a little bit of back pain. I smoked a little weed. I felt better. Um, And then the next morning, I literally couldn't. I couldn't turn over. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't move. Um, And a friend took me to the emergency room. I spent all day in the emergency room. They filled me up with morphine. I went home. Uh, And then in the middle of the night, I woke up and couldn't move. And so the next day, another friend called the ambulance, took me to the emergency room, and I spent two weeks in the hospital um, flat on my back. Uh, It was incredibly traumatic for a lot of reasons. Um, The hospital, they weren't particularly kind in the emergency room. The doctors were kind of jerky with the exception of my surgeon. And like one pain doctor who actually really did try to help me um insurance nightmares i mean just all of it it was just constant awfulness
0: (laughs) and were you uh depressed before this uh
1: i was yes although i would have told you no okay but yes i was okay um That relationship was so strange and so confusing to me, but I was, like, soldiering through, pretending that everything was fine. We were also working on a movie at the time, so I was really excited to be doing that. I was sort of helping to produce, and I was in it, and so all of that felt really good. Uh, Two weeks later, I had the back surgery. That was the same time that that relationship came to an end, like, two days after um, that ended, two days after the surgery that ended, and I just didn't, it was the first time in my life that I had really had my heart broken. I was physically incapacitated. Um, my parents were there. I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't shower or bathe myself like I was being taken care of, like I was a baby. Um, and I felt alone, in a have never felt so alone in my life. And I've just felt really unmoored and sad. And I didn't. I had not experienced something so uh, emotionally traumatic, uh, I guess. And so I started having panic attacks, which I had never experienced before. And so finally... I
0: love the idea of a panic attack while you're immobilized. Oh, my God. It's fantastic. Awful. It's like you're trapped in your body. It's
1: the worst. I only
0: hope there, that the it, the air was thick with mosquitoes.
1: <laughs> uh, it was. Yeah, I got it. Oh, that whole period is like a nightmare. I <laughs> try to never revisit. Can't
0: move in your Can't a, move. And you're attack. like having a heart attack. And what, what was uh, the diagnosis for the back?
1: Uh, herniated you? disc. Mm. What's okay. crazy is that. Even my doctor uh, didn't believe me. He said, "He said there's no way you don't know how you did this." He said, "It's like I as- would if I were just looking at your back and not talking to you, I'd assume you were like a discus thrower because it's that kind of injury where you've picked something up and thrown it." And mm. I mm. nothing. I have no idea, but it was herniated like six millimeters or some craziness, and like pieces were broken off,
0: and like Jesus. yeah, it was
1: really bad, and. I had no idea until that day that I woke up. Um,
0: so you're having the panic so attacks. So I had the
1: panic attacks, and I I sent everyone home. I sent my family home.
0: Uh, you were laying uh, up at home? Uh,
1: by then I was moving, and I had a walker and a cane, and I was doing... By the time I sent everyone home, I was at least able to take showers by myself, and I had a walker and a cane. And I had friends who would come over every day and help me. Um So by the time I sent everyone home, that was probably, I think it ended up being three or four weeks, three or four weeks after the hospital that I decided I was going to take all the pain pills that I had. Um, But I, I am controlling and uh, I needed to know that I had enough. So I Googled how many I needed and I don't remember exactly the number now, but I remember that I did not have enough, but they will give you whatever you ask for when you've had surgery. They will give you more medicine without really checking on your mental health. <laughs> uh, so I figured I would just ask for more the next day at the doctor. And then that was when I told my friend and she took all the everything I could hurt myself with out of the house. So that was and then that was when I checked myself into the hospital.
0: So talk about that.
1: Um, It was not like I expected. <laughs> How so? Uh, I expect. I mean, you know, I expected like cuckoo's nest. I expected really crazy people. I expected, um, I also expected really intense therapy. I expected really like to mm-hmm. dig in and it's not um, the place I went. I mean, it's a very nice place. So there was like, uh, you know, I joke that there's like carpeting and ice cream that you can just help yourself to. Um, we all had private rooms. They were like, our names were on pairs paper covered in clouds next to our rooms. Everyone seemed like weirdly cheery. I started on the geriatric ward because that was the only place they had space but when I was moved to the adult ward I remember a woman greeted me with like a she clapped and she was like oh a new friend and I I thought this is so bizarrely cheerful. We're all suicidal. (laughs) (laughs) Like why are you all so excited to be here? Um But also, I checked myself in on a Friday afternoon, so I was told that nothing would happen over the weekend. So it was a very low-key... My first two days were very low-key. I spent the first day um, watching Criminal Minds for 12 hours, which was how I discovered that. And then the next day, a couple friends came to visit, uh, which was straight... I only told about four or five people and my representation. I had to I had to tell my representation I couldn't I had to book out so only about eight people knew and so three or four of them came in to visit and brought me things like underwear which I didn't I didn't prepare to stay there so they brought me practical things like underwear and magazines and my toothbrush and things like that. Um, It was very it was very weird because particularly being on the geriatric ward it was very solitary um, the adult ward, you're required to socialize. You have to, you all have to eat in the day room and you go outside at regular intervals and there are like games and you have group therapy. But on the geriatric ward, unless someone asks, because most of the people aren't ambulatory, you're not going to go outside. Um, they don't make you come out into the day room because, again, people can't move. So the first two days were very solitary. I spent a lot of time crying. I remember that I had a lot of conversations with the nurses that just seemed like very innocuous conversations, which I realized later were all being reported back to my psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Um, They were also all reporting what I didn't eat. Like I thought I was being really sneaky and I would throw my food away and they were all making sure that she knew that too. Why were you throwing your food away? Um, I was sick all the time and I don't know if, I mean this is a common issue. I can't keep food down when I'm in a really depressive um period but also my medicine makes me feel queasy mm-hmm. and also I was coming off of opiates Oof. so I have no clue what was causing it but I just was throwing up constantly so instead of eating I would just toss it or sometimes I'd try to eat it and throw throw it up but most of the time I would just throw it away but I didn't want to get in trouble I thought I was going to get in trouble if I talked to anyone about it so I just would hide it or just toss it.
0: What um, What was your goal when you were in there? To get out? To get better? To stop I, feeling suicidal?
1: I wanted to stop feeling suicidal. I wanted them to fix it. I really thought that they could fix it for me. Like, I thought that once I went in there, someone would tell me, like, a magic thing that would fix it. <laughs> I think that was my goal. I just wanted to stop feeling that way. I thought someone would be able to do that. Um What I realize now is that that's not the place for that. That's really, hospitals are just to keep you safe, which is why I've had...
0: And the quality of care Mm -hmm. and the type of care varies so greatly from hospital to hospital.
1: Yeah. A friend of mine went into a county hospital, and her description was
0: horrifying. They're nightmarish. Yeah.
1: It was really... Horrifying.
0: I don't know if they're all nightmarish, but many of them are nightmarish.
1: A lot of them are. Yeah. And she was kept there. The the other thing, I, I firmly believe that if I mean, because I was a voluntary, I checked myself in voluntarily. So I was told I could leave at any time mm-hmm. unless they decided that I was still a harm, still harmful to myself. So I felt very confident in the idea that if I wanted to go, I could. Um, she did not have that experience. She wanted to leave multiple times and couldn't um so they very i mean that everything is very different my experience was like a a spa compared to a lot of people i've heard now um but i also uh, i and,
0: and some people have had transformative beautiful experiences yes in psychiatric hospitals yes
1: and i i i th- and i have I have no beef with them. I I I think they're very useful, and many people have had amazing experiences in them. Mine was um, transformative in that uh, I got this diagnosis, which changed my life. Um, uh, borderline, of borderline, personal. and um, and it sort of woke me up to this idea that. Um, this is ev- this is everyone like there. there uh, what do you mean meaning the people in the ward who were equally fucked up were they owned businesses one guy owned an international business one was a mom one um woman was my age and she'd been an addict and she'd been in there six times but like she had this boyfriend that she loved and they were going to move up to the you know, somewhere in Northern California. I mean, like every person has a story. Every person is a human being. They're not all sort of like running around. Yeah, st- it, you know, the
0: stereotype the stere- is that they're right. they're not functioning humans. They're street people. Right. Oh. And they I mean, don't hold down jobs. Yeah, they're, they a complete, they're burden complete burden to so- exactly. society, and they're and they're scary.
1: Mm-hmm. And so the assumption is that if you're doing okay in the world and you seem to be functioning, there's, you probably aren't ill. When in fact, I think a lot of us are. (laughs) So that was a, and I remember even thinking when I got my, when I sat in my first group therapy thing, I was like, Oh, I'm not this crazy. And the truth is, of course I totally am. (laughs) Um, But I had a lot of judgment before I went in about, mental health and a mental illness and even having had even, even having been diagnosed with depression and having lived with that i i had really judged myself um for having it i really was kind of gross about like well i exercise and i take vitamins and so i'm controlling my depression and it was all a total lie so that experience gave me sort of woke me up to the idea that this isn't there is no stereotypical person with mental Mm -hmm. illness so that that was how that changed me Um, but in terms of my experience like I didn't feel like I had anything sort of profound I didn't have a profound therapeutic experience necessarily I think it took me out of my environment and kept me physically safe but in the times that I have had A plan, means, and access since. I have deliberately chosen not to go to the hospital because I don't like it there. And I don't think it's helpful um, for me. It's a place that I think of as a very last resort. If I have to go, uh, I will, but I would prefer not to. I'd prefer to use
0: other means to keep myself safe. Any little vignettes from your stay there that you think are worth sharing or just kind of are stuck in your brain for some reason? Um, I, I remember,
1: um, I remember the first time I went outside when I was on the adult ward. Well, there are a lot actually. The, the first night I was there, I remember, um, (laughs) the woman, the nurse took away my phone and she said that they have like famous patients sometimes. So she took away my phone. And I remember being awake in the middle of the night and hearing my phone go off and sort of being like agitated that I couldn't get to it. I remember thinking it was very strange and pathetic and sad that we weren't allowed to close our doors. Um, I remember that every possible way you might want to kill yourself had been considered
0: (laughs) uh and thwarted that's probably when you realize how many of us there are yeah
1: (laughs) i was like wow you guys got had to get real dark for this um and even like i also remember there was a there was i there was a conversation at breakfast uh one of the guys there was like why don't we have phones in our rooms um And I literally just, I was like, we'd kill ourselves with the cords. Like, I didn't even think about it. It just came out of my mouth. (laughs) Um, I remember uh, one of the kindest things that happened, actually, was my first day on the adult ward. The first time we went outside, Um, I didn't know anyone. And this woman came up to me and she offered me her other earbud. She had one and she offered me hers. And we walked around in a circle on this very tiny deck listening to Beyonce. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful uh and she was like we need we need this sometimes we need to just listen to beyonce and i was like yeah you never you should always be listening to beyonce uh that was very kind of her and she sort of became my friend in that in that on that ward um uh i remember i remember my friend who came to visit me she was the first person to ask me what i was going to do when i got out and i Genuinely didn't know what to do because I didn't want to leave yet. I didn't know what would happen if I left. Um, My last, the last thing I did on the ward was go to occupational therapy, which is basically arts and crafts. And I hated it. I thought it was uh, demeaning and weird and I hated every second of it. And I totally intellectually understand why it's important. And also I hated it. And I felt pressured to do something, so I grabbed like a you know one of those plastic butterflies that you paint to make it look like it's stained glass, and the therapist came up to me, and she was like, "Oh, that's a good choice." I said, "Yeah." and she said, "Do you know what a butterfly means?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm not an idiot." like she she was like, "It's transparent." Transformation. I was like, yeah, again, not an it like, yeah, thank you for the I get it. It's just, I'm just trying to get out of here. Like my ride comes in two hours. I just want to like finish. <laughs> so uh I was bitter till the end. Um And I remember being when I told the when I told the psychiatrist I wanted to go home, she was like, yeah, you're very polite. And I remember thinking that was a very strange thing to that was a strange reason to let me go, that I was polite. We're releasing
0: Celia because yeah. she's punctual.
1: Yeah. <laughs> she <laughs> has some excellent table manners. <laughs> so let that girl go home. It was very... I thought it was all very strange. Um, yeah, those are the things that stick out about it So my you hospital. went from
0: uh, a feeling of, I don't want to leave here, I won't feel safe being outside of here, to, okay, I'm ready to...
1: Yeah, I think leave. I was not exactly ready i definitely should have stayed longer but it my insurance wasn't covering it and i was very aware of how much it was costing um and my family didn't know i was there what yeah i didn't tell them that i was going why uh because if i did my mother would fly out would have flown out and she would have
0: made it all about made her. it all about her yeah and then it becomes how did I know you because were in the Because you've this? done
1: how many of these podcasts at <laughs> this point? Yeah, it would have become about her, and I would have had to then take care of her. I actually didn't tell her for probably six or eight months. Um, it took me a really long time to finally tell her that it happened. So I felt like financially I was on the hook for this whole thing. And, and I didn't. I also was being triggered by being in a hospital um, after the, Experience in the hospital for my back, hmm. I still get sort of sweaty at blood pressure machines and all of that. It was not, I, so I had a conversation with one of the doctors. I couldn't decide if it was more or less harmful to stay in the hospital hmm. because it was creating anxiety, but also I was safe, but also I wow. was anxious. What a mixed so, bag. Yeah. It was not, I mean, it's really not fun at all. It was awful. Um, Because I didn't know that I was safe at home either. And I... I frankly probably wasn't. Like, I don't think I should have left. But... I think I'm good at pretending that I'm fine and people believe me a lot.
0: Give me, hypothetically, you Mm -hmm. think how it might have gone down if you had called home while you were there.
1: My mother would have flown out. Right. Uh... She would have done what she did for my back surgery, which was not listen to anything I asked for. She would have come into my apartment and spent it every moment cleaning it. Um, my favorite story about my mother during that time was that she wanted to have the, um, refrigerator, refrigerator door replaced because she feels like my refrigerator opens the wrong way. It opens out mm-hmm. towards the apartment, not towards the stove. Uh, and so she really wanted to get that repaired. <laughs> Which I think is like the most my mother example I can give of how she tries to control everything when she feels out of control. And so that's what would have happened. I would, she would, have, I would have come home to a, a, an apartment I didn't recognize or a, a, an apartment that was packed up and she would have taken me home. Um, one of those two things would have happened. She would not have recognized me as a
0: human being with agency and so she's not somebody that enjoys making a joint decision
1: no she's not she's not a person who does joint decisions at all um she also yeah she's a she needs to fix she's a fixer she wants to come in and fix everything it's very hard it's also very hard for her to understand that this is not a thing that can be solved with uh money or vacations or food, like those; those are the things that she sort of throws at problems. Mm. Um, and she, it took a very long time for me to help her understand or get her to understand that this is uh, this isn't going to necessarily be fixed or cured. It will get better, and then it will get worse, and it will get better and worse. It but can be managed, right? But it's not. It's not going to just be fixed. And she really. Thought that it would be, I think. Um, so, yeah, if I had called her, the shit would have hit the fan.
0: So, was she upset with you when you did tell her that you were in there, or have you never told her?
1: No, I told her. Uh, I told her maybe six or eight months later.
0: And how long ago was this day?
1: The stay was three years ago, almost. May will be three years. Um, I told her six or eight months after we were having a conversation. I was not doing well. And she said, do you think you should go to a hospital? And I said, well, I've already done that. And she said, what? (laughs) And I said, I already did that. And she said, was that that week that you didn't return any of my phone calls? (laughs) And I said, yes. Uh, And then I told her, I told her that I had been diagnosed with borderline and she maybe called me back two or three days later and she said, oh, everything makes sense now that I read about that. Like it really helped her understand when she heard that. Um, she wasn't angry at me. I think by then she felt defeated by me sort of shutting her out and being so sad <clears throat> uh, that I think she just felt sad that, she, that I didn't feel safe to come to her more than anything else. She wasn't angry. I think she was probably hurt.
0: Isn't that so. interesting that the most honest moment of connection you had between you and your mom mm-hmm. came as a result of you shutting her her out of your life yeah
1: which i it's interesting because i think our relationship is probably the healthiest it's ever been now and i think it is absolutely a result of me cutting her out for a time and sort of figuring out where i lived without her influence because there's my mother is a very um she's a hyper capable person and she's the kind of person who like still balances her checkbook by hand And pays her bills the day they come in and doesn't understand people who don't function that way. Mm -hmm. And there's been a a sort of butting of heads our whole lives because I just don't operate that way. My brain doesn't work that way. And she doesn't she didn't understand. She just thought it was a
0: why wouldn't you just get your shit together? Um, I'm picturing her uh, having white carpeting where she lives.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She has white uh, tile She doesn't even have carpet in her (laughs) house. Uh, Yeah, it's all tile um, in my mom's house. And it's very minimal. Uh, Everything is very minimalist. You would not assume that a person lives there full time.
0: White carpeting, the calling card of the control freak. Mm -hmm.
1: It's true. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. Uh, It pained her because I was such a slob. It pained her... Um, to look at my room, so she would just at a, at a certain point, she just closed the door. She couldn't deal with it anymore because I was so opposite of her. Um, but yeah, I think we've come to a detente now. I think we've under we understand each other in different ways, which I think also comes with age on my part. Mm-hmm. And she, I have to give her complete credit. She really f- did try to understand once she had all this information. Mm-hmm she went to a therapist on her own and she really did try to understand so i have to give her
0: that's beautiful
1: full full props like if i'm gonna say you know uh bad things about her then i also have to acknowledge that she's really she's really stepped up in a way to understand which is amazing
0: so So after you were diagnosed how have you learned to cope with with having borderline personality disorder?
1: Um, well, the first thing it did was make me aware, uh, so that now I understand why certain behaviors, why I was behaving in certain ways. so,
0: and that your feelings aren't always and reality that my
1: feelings are not always reality. so i the f- the sort of immediate thing that I did was get a therapist who does DBT um, dialectical
0: behavior therapy. right.
1: And that has helped immensely. The therapist I was seeing at the time didn't do that. And she very clearly said, I'm not equipped to do this. Let's find someone else. And so I did. Uh, I also, I ended up cutting a lot of people out of my life. So the people in my life now are people I trust. And they are people that I kind of sometimes can, not kind of sometimes, I can usually say, hey, this is how I feel. Is this do you think this is okay? Do you think this is reasonable? Where am I on the, on the
0: chart? And is that something you've learned in doing DBT? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: I also, I mean, then just other skills like, uh, um, sort of, you know, if I'm feeling panicky, like very basic things like naming countries, counting things, naming things in a room that just keep me present. Um, I also started meditating. Uh, I'm not one for workbooks. Like my therapist tried to give me a workbook and I didn't do that. But I do, I say that I have Buddhist tendencies. So I'm trying, I'm, I lean toward that sort of really trying to stay mindful and present. Um, I try to really ask for opinions you know if someone i really ask, i i try to be very clear about how i feel in a moment and say i don't know if this is reasonable but i need to talk to you about this or just be i i've gotten to the point where i just say things um uh i say exactly what i need to say you know even if it sounds very strange or maybe it's going to put someone off i try to say like hey i feel very nervous in this moment saying this thing but i have to say it this hurt whatever it is
0: mm-hmm. um in that moment does it feel like you're um containing an explosion and it's yes. and it's hard yes yes yeah.
1: um because every moment as far as i'm concerned is a is the moment for someone's gonna leave mm-hmm. so anytime i state a need or a preference or even say something that i think is maybe not Uh, the sort of softest way I, softest way to say something it, it, I, I imagine it's going to cause a person to leave I actually just had this experience a couple days ago that I sort of unleashed in an email to a friend of mine who is one of the closest people in my life he's probably the closest thing I'll ever have to a brother and I love him and he loves me and I know that and I was frustrated about something and I sent him an email that was just me unleashing an emotional barrage of garbage on him and he didn't respond to the email and so my immediate thought was that's it this is this friendship is over even though we're so close we love each other we're like family to each other I was really convinced it was over that he would never speak to me again. And then a couple of days later, I texted him, and I said, hey, can we get together and talk? And he texted me back immediately, set a time immediately. We sat down and had dinner, and he said, no, I knew where that was coming from, but I also knew that to respond to you would only make it worse, and it wasn't going to help you, uh, so I chose not to. And it was a, it was a moment where I had... I, I said to him and I had the thought, I was like, right, okay, because I can trust he's not going anywhere. Uh, it was a really important moment in our friendship to know that I can trust him to stay. Um, but it is constant all of the time. To- like That feels constant all of the time, that any time I feel like I might have overstepped a boundary, someone is going to just disappear.
0: Uh, and, the, and the irony is a lot of the impulse Uh in having borderline personality disorder is being impulsive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is the thing that I maybe am working on the most, which is not to send those kinds of emails most of the time. And I think it probably whether he, I'm sure he should be flattered uh, that I felt safe enough to do it because most of the time I now wait uh, two or three hours before I send anything. I write a lot of things like I'll write my phone is full of notes that I've written where I'm, I feel the impulse to write someone or tell someone something, um, and so I write it down and then decide if I need to send it. Because I feel I have a lot of things I, I, I want to say, and I struggle with um, uh, needing answers right now like needing to settle
0: things right now. And imagine and to be understood.
1: And to be understood, yes. And and writing is a way that I can be understood because I can get everything I need out. Because Mm -hmm. often, um, if I'm in a conversation, I get too emotional and I shut down and I can't respond in a way that I want to. And because I'm so scared of being angry, now I just get quiet. And so writing is a way I can express myself. But I also know that sometimes... Um, what I'm learning is sometimes it's better to let something breathe than to force a situation. So if I, you know, a- am dating someone, I, it's not going to serve me to be, to sort of say like, are we boyfriend or girlfriend? Or what's the deal? What are we doing? Where do you see this going? How are you feeling about me? Which is what I really, what I want to do. Cause I need mm-hmm. to have some sort something like black and white that I can hang my hat on. And I don't have to live in a gray area. Uh, But that's not how people operate. (laughs) Um, So I write those things down and then I wait two or four or six or 24 hours. And then most of the time I forget about it and I don't send it.
0: So the feelings have changed.
1: Yeah. The feelings change. Wow. Yeah. Which is something I didn't know was possible. (laughs) But, But I think because when I used to act on impulse, it would create drama which would perpetuate the bad feelings now if i wait the feelings usually pass i get distracted by something that is something that's weird about borderline for me is that like i my feelings change on a dime i can be sobbing um on naked on my floor and then 10 minutes later be laughing at something it's a really bizarre thing to live with so that's why the writing down helps me because it will shift i know it will it will shift very quickly. So, to set something on fire by sending a text that doesn't okay. need to be sent is, I, it can wait. If it needs to be set on fire, it will be. Like yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> I can trust myself to set a lot of well, stuff on fire. Thank
0: you for all that. The practical um, examples of oh yeah p- ways that you practice managing.
1: Yeah, I mean it's the only way that works for mi- for me. I think. The thing about Borderline and the thing that I am managing now is that the feelings are so much. The f- uh, The feelings are so, so much. And they're triggered by any number of things. So if there's like a baseline level of sadness, if I see something on the news that makes me upset, it makes it worse. Like even this morning, some video was being posted on Facebook about... Uh, the objectification of women and I started to get t- really upset and rage filled and sad <laughs> it wasn 't even nine a m and I had cried over this video and that 's sort of how my I work so I have to have these practical tools these things i do i can 't i don 't go to therapy and talk about my feelings very often. I have to do things and talk about the things i 'm doing because I will get I'll die and I'm feeling quagmire if I don't Hmm. stay active or focused on tasks,
0: if that makes sense. It does. It does. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that stuff. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to do some fears and loves? Sure. Do we skip over any... uh, I don't know.
1: Should I... Are there other things I should talk about? No, I feel
0: like that was... uh, that was a lot of great okay. stuff.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: I'm not abandoning you, That's, Celia. I'm not I'm, I'm right here for the fears and loves. I know. I'm right here. I'm across the table. <laughs>
1: it's true. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I don't think so. I sometimes think these are easier when you ask questions. So I feel like I don't think I'm missing anything, but I
0: also don't know that
1: it, it's going to pop into my head if I, if if I if I did feel that way.
0: Well, if you do, if something pops in your head that you wanted to to talk about, just uh, just let me know. Okay, Um, give me uh, give me some fears. Okay,
1: Um, I wrote them down because I have to write everything down.
0: I do too. I can. Yeah, (laughs) but of course, I didn't write any down for this. I. Started improvising these about <laughs> two years ago because I ran out. I mean yeah. I did I've probably done six hundred fears uh, doing the podcast and so now I'm yeah. like what just, else do you <laughs> if I think of one I'll jump in with it.
1: Okay. Uh yeah, I, I that's funny because I struggled to come up with a lot. It's interesting because I think I was talking about fear with someone recently and I don't have very many Because when you hit rock bottom, like when you don't care if you're alive or dead, it's really hard to be afraid of anything. So Mm -hmm. things I used to be afraid of, I don't care about them. Um, I I mean, I came up with a few. But but for the most part, I kept sort of thinking, like, I was like, really? I don't know what I'm afraid of. But I guess I will tell you. Uh, I'm afraid I will never know what unmitigated joy feels like. Um, I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh,
1: I'm afraid I'm mediocre at everything and no one's telling me the truth. <laughs> um, I'm afraid I will never meet a person who I think is electric and wonderful, and I love who thinks the same of me. Those are all my fears. Those are great.
0: Thanks. Those are great. <laughs> You're such a good guest. <laughs> Thank you, you really are. You really Thanks. are. Um, give me some loves.
1: Um, okay. Uh, I just thought of this one the other day because I was at the Broad. I love the smell of a city museum.
0: Oh, that's a great one. They're
1: very—it's a very specific very, like, smell.
0: Like drugstores are a specific yeah. smell.
1: and I—I I walked in. I had been there before, but I, I it was a different. I was on a date, and it was a different circumstance. And I went by myself. And I remember walking in. I used to work in a museum in New York, and I walked in, and I thought, God, they all smell the same. And, and it's a very so subtle, wonderful, smell. yeah. But I—it made it took me immediately to the Met. And immediately to the Jewish museum, which is where I used to work it was it w- I love the smell of a city mm. museum very really good
0: that's a great one
1: um I love eating pancakes in a diner at two in the morning.
0: <laughs> oh that's a really good one uh I love the smell of a wood shop. I love the smell ooh, yeah of that's a good one sawdust just freshly made sawdust, and each wood has its own smell mm-hmm. There are like a uh, a friend um had a camphor tree in his yard uh get cut down and so he said do you want the wood and so for a couple of months this was a few years ago i was making things out of camphor and every time you would mill it it was like you were in a spa it was such an amazing smell
1: i love that yeah i love i love a wood smell too
0: yeah, certain, and certain woods have just the most. Um, there's there's a wood called uh, Port Orford Cedar, which is grown in Oregon, and it's mostly imported, exported to Japan because they uh, it's considered sacred, and they built a lot of Japanese temples with it. And it has the most beautiful, really, really subtle uh, fragrance. Fragrance almost like it could be a. Um, I don't know. Like somewhere between a food and a perfume. It's this it's this oh, wow. really it's kind of crisp. It's kind of um, fruity, but it's also kind of earthy. Yeah, it's amazing. That's, that's, that's incredible. Amazing. Yeah, I love I love the smell of different woods. Yeah.
1: I also like the smell of bookstores, which is Yes. There's nothing like that. Um I I love the weird moment before a first kiss when you hesitate just a little bit to make sure it's welcome and then you wonder what it will be like and then suddenly you're super intimate with this person who maybe you didn't even know the day before.
0: Wow, that's a great one.
1: Uh, <laughs> I love <laughs> I love the swagger that happens uncontrollably in my hips when I wear my cowboy boots.
0: <clears> that <At> a girl. <laughs> I love watching uh, any kind of baby animal uh, gently eat a piece of fruit. My wife ha- keeps, she's watched it about 60 times, an Instagram video of a tiny French bulldog puppy uh, eating a strawberry, mostly licking it, but it, That's it's best. so, it's so awesome. That's it's best. so awesome. I did watch
1: at length a sloth eat a banana. <laughs> <laughs> like for days I would just keep watching it yeah. over and over. There's nothing like animals eating fruit i think that's
0: really and i think being with our uh, for me being with my dogs is the hands down the easiest way for me to be present yeah there's no other way same every other thing well maybe outside of playing hockey as well Mm -hmm. almost every other thing is a fight to to stay present although i have to say interviewing people for this show is super easy to be to be present
1: do find it helpful i find it for the most part, I actually was just saying this that this time around it did not feel as helpful. But do you find it? Do you find that it helps you to talk to other people? At, like it? Oh, oh God, yes.
0: Helping other people helps you. Uh, yeah. um, and, and I'm helped by right. by other people. Yes, yeah. it may sound like I'm just saying that, but I'm not. I'm no, not. I struggle with feeling. Um, uh, I've struggled with feeling weird my whole life, and. um When a guest gets vulnerable, it's just that little uh, fire in my brain that tells me I'm weird um, just kind of dims down. And Mm -hmm. and the more people kind of reveal things about themselves that they've struggled with, that they're not proud of, uh, I just feel that connection, that human connection, I think is why we're here. That's
1: beautiful. Yeah, I, that's how I, someone asked me why I <clears throat> why I talk about, like, why I share it. It feels so personal. And it's usually because there's almost always a me too afterwards. Me I too's I get a are lot of, like, private messages or people coming up to me after I, if I tell it, tell it as a story somewhere. A lot of me too's. And that always feels better. Oh,
0: yeah. The me, me too's have changed my life. Yeah. Changed my life
1: because you think you're so alone i thought i was so alone i thought i was the only person who felt this way and
0: far from not even close not even close close. yeah give me a couple more loves
1: um i i love the moment before the lights go down in a theater when i'm about to see a play my chest gets really fluttery
0: no that's awesome um If if i can just brag yeah When my wife and I were in New York about, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago, um, we hadn't reserved any tickets to Mm -hmm. see anything, but we were like, let's see if we can get something last minute, and I don't know how the hell it happened, but we got tickets to see... um, uh, True West starring <gasps> Philip, Seymour. Fim- Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley. And they every night they would switch mm-hmm. roles. And I the saw night- it three times. Oh, okay. And the <laughs> night we saw it was where John C. Riley played the fuck up brother. Oh, yes. Okay. Which is yeah. how I think it's ideally cast. Sure. And it, it was amazing. Yeah. Amazing.
1: That's the one where, if it's cast that way, Philip Seymour Hoffman has the toaster scene. Where he's losing yes. his mind over the toasters. Yes, yes you're right. Uh, that is yeah. the perfect way to cast Yeah, it. I remember, I saw it. I was there studying that summer. Um, and I saw it three times. I, I went specifically so I could see them do the different roles. I Philip Seymour Hoffman. I've never i mean just being in the room when he was working i saw him in long day's journey and tonight too he's he was a force of nature and another one where i'm like i totally get it i get the darkness that was living inside of you and i
0: don't oh, yeah. fault if, you <laughs> if you're good in long day's journey yeah. tonight you're dark yeah that is the most yeah. bleak play it is. ever written
1: it is <laughs> yeah. um but he was magic. I just thought he was so fantastic. I had I was lucky enough to, lucky enough to see him in a bunch of different plays and I every single one was transformative for me. He's he was a genius. I'm I'm so excited you got to see that show yeah, cuz I thought was it was great. so
0: good. it was great. Give me give me a couple more of uh, <clears> those.
1: <throat> I travel alone a lot and I love being lost in a city that I don't know and I don't speak the language of. Um I think that's all my loves.
0: I love putting on a comfortable pair of shoes and walking like 4 or 5 miles through San Francisco and just finding some some little hole in the wall to eat at and then yeah. Two blocks later, there's some guy hand-making chocolates in a little <laughs> storefront. You're like, yeah, I'll have sure. of those. And then some independent coffee house where yeah. you have the best latte you've had in five yeah. years. And you'll
1: never remember the name of that place yeah. ever again. And then yeah. some
0: guy rides by on a bike that's nine feet tall. <laughs> and you're like, just go. Yeah. Go, freaks, go. Yeah,
1: yeah. I love it. Um, that's my... It's my... I. I've always been a traveler, but my ex-husband didn't really ever want to go places. And so when we got divorced, the first thing I did was um, spend a month in Australia. And then last year I spent a month in Europe and I found myself in Budapest being yelled at by a man in the street, not knowing where I was going and not knowing what he was yelling at me about and still like... Loving every awesome. second. I was like, fantastic. "Yeah, he's yelling at me. I have no clue what I've done."
0: <laughs> I want to go to Australia. We have a really, really great uh, bunch of of listeners that are super supportive of yeah. the show down there. Yeah, and I it would just is, love to go meet them sometime. And-
1: it's a I I did I went I started and ended in Sydney. I went up through the center up to um, the Re- Daintree Rainforest and then down the east coast. And I really want to just get a caravan and go up the west coast Mm -hmm. i think it's the most i love that country uh and one of the things i love the most is that everyone invites you to their home and they all mean it like i met a guy while i was camping in the outback and he was asking me where i was going next and i said oh i'm going up north and he said oh my parents have a house in port douglas it's open all the time here's the address if you find yourself in port douglas just go to it and he was not kidding like he wa- and it and it wasn't like i was going to be murdered there like right. it was really just he was opening his home to me oh you were
0: going to be murdered in brisbane but <laughs> yes. you were going to be fine i was
1: gonna be fine, in in fine in port, port douglas. douglas yeah yeah i met a woman wine tasting who said oh if you make it up to darwin call us i mean like everyone wow. was so generous and wonderful um and really welcoming I love that country. I, I almost mm. didn't come back.
0: <laughs> uh, when you're normally traveling, are, mm-hmm. is it for pleasure or you're, a bit, you're traveling for business?
1: Usually pleasure. I uh, I made a promise to myself that every couple of years I would take a big month-long trip like that by myself. Whether I'm in a relationship or not, I'll go somewhere. And so usually it's for pleasure. I I don't take my phone. Um, I don't take a computer. I stay in hostels. And I tell everyone not to call me or try and contact God, you me. You are a
0: badass. <laughs> You're well, it's a fucking bad. I
1: just really I it's my it's the best it is the best thing. I've had so many adventures that way. Like I actually said to my mother the last time I did it. I like I've watched the fireworks in Sydney Harbor. I've slept in the like under the stars on the ground at Uluru. I just went to Christmas mass and at Notre Dame last year. Like those are all once-in-a-lifetime experiences, and I had them all. I mean, it's crazy. It's a crazy gift. and um, But it almost always, I really firmly believe a lot of those happen because I'm by myself, because mm-hmm. I don't owe anyone any, anything, and I get to just do what I want. And and you don't so. have
0: your phone and your computer. And I don't have you're my, phone and my computer. You're doing something that we all say we should do, but <laughs> none of us ever do. Yeah. Which it's... is why you're a badass. <laughs> Thank you. Celia. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Wow. What a, what a great guest. And, um, God, we covered so many, so many topics. Uh, thank you, Lorraine, for, for suggesting Celia. And thank you, Celia, for laying it all out there. Um, before I go into the surveys and, um, talk about the elephant in the room, that is the intersection of mental health and our uh, political landscape. Um, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can go to our website, metalpod.com, and make either a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Uh, People have been uh, canceling their monthly donations and leaving the podcast because of um, the past couple of episodes of um, discussing uh the issues of sexual assault and whether or not pe- people feel safe in our society and uh, how politics are making them feel. But as I've discussed in the last couple of episodes, I've made the decision um, to try to um, address that because I feel it's pertinent and I'm trying to uh, keep it absolutely limited to how it affects mental health issues Um but there you uh there you have it we could we could use some more support um, you can also support us if you're going to buy something at Amazon uh click on the Amazon logo on our homepage and uh it will take you to a page where you will see book recommendations and then um a link if you, if you want to buy something other than one of the books we recommend, you'll see a little link that says, uh, I, I believe shop at Amazon, uh, for other stuff and click on that. And a good idea is after you click on that, the, the, the page that it takes you to bookmark that. And then anytime you want to buy something at Amazon, just go to that bookmark and you don't have to go through our website or any of that stuff. And somebody asked a question, uh, from Canada or the UK. Can they use Amazon UK or Canada? Um, uh you cannot they uh, apparently it's there's no way for those amazons to have us get um some money when you guys buy something at amazon and by the way it doesn't make your the price of what you're getting um when you shop at amazon any more expensive amazon gives us a, a little bit of money when you buy something um but obviously I'm talking just to Americans uh right now because that's the only The only, uh, what are they called, Amazon Associates. I can't be an Amazon Associate in any country other than the United States. Uh, Even the ones I'm going to be fleeing to. Kidding, of course. Um, Okay, you've been warned. I want to read something to you. Uh, I stumbled across this, and it's the definition of antisocial personality disorder. Uh, Individuals with antisocial personality disorder tend to be charismatic, attractive, and very good at obtaining sympathy from others by describing themselves as the victim of injustice. Antisocials possess a superficial charm and have an intuitive ability to rapidly observe and analyze others, determine their needs and preferences, and present it in a manner to facilitate manipulation and exploitation. They are able to harm and use other people in this manner without remorse, guilt, shame, or regret. That is one of the reasons why I feel um, that this has to be discussed. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I don't have to discuss this frequently on the show, but I am... Um, I believe strongly that this is a time when there needs to be advocacy for people feeling safe in our in our society. And a lot of people after the election do not feel safe. Um, I know there are a lot of people that are happy with the outcome and who feel safer. But I don't feel that our previous presidents have made them feel unsafe to the point that their mental struggles are flaring up and they don't feel safe in the world um, and if you care to disagree with me uh, you can go ahead and send it but I have thought so long and so hard about how to be true to the podcast and my own belief about the direction the world should head mentally um, the mental direction we should head that I I have to. I have to do this. And I apologize to anybody who um, is feeling excluded by this. It is not my intent to minimize your experience, to humiliate you. Um, I hope you know that this is coming from a good place. Okay. Um, I want to read one survey first. This is filled up by Violet, who is 15. And she writes... um, I'm in a girls' choir, and I have been for eight years. Yesterday, we sat in a circle and we started talking about the election and what it means to us. A woman who is a voice teacher and is kind of assisting our choir told us about her struggle with anorexia and self-harm and being suicidal after 9-11, and it was so powerful. People shared their stories. Someone talked about how they were sexually assaulted in fifth grade people talked about being gay and knowing sexual assault victims and how having a rapist and misogynist for a president affected them we all cried and it brought us so much closer together it was so cathartic and so therapeutic and i thank the voice teacher after after for sharing her story here's my thoughts a lot of people are really angry right now and While that is understandable, two things that I have had to navigate and learned from navigating in the last 20 plus years have been being married and playing hockey. And it occurred to me many, many years into both of them that how I express my anger also affects my future relationship with the people I express my anger at. Um, I'll start with angry teammates. Um, Sometimes I get angry at angry teammates because they're taking stupid penalties and it's losing us the game. I used to yell at them and that didn't do anything. Um, I used to yell at refs that were making calls that I didn't like, and that didn't do anything. Um, what I used to—I didn't used to yell at my wife, but I would be cold, and I would try to win if we were disagreeing about something. You know, there was a part of me that wanted her to feel defeat, and it occurred to me, eventually, that this is a a person that I love why would I want them to feel defeated? That's that's not a win for me because that person is still in my life. And if we think about the other people that share this country with us, our goal shouldn't be to humiliate them and have them feel pain or destroy their property. That's not gonna help anything. When my marriage got better in terms of communication was when we both started listening to each other and describing how we were feeling. Um, My relationship with hockey became so much better when I stopped trying to change people. I accepted that they were the way they were, and I tried my best. What was within my power to do the best job that I could without giving away my self-esteem um, or my serenity? And I learned that there were some things that I had to do to do that. Um, instead of trying to change uh, angry teammates or yell at them, um, I would try to talk them down you know i would try to say instead of saying dude you know stop fucking yelling you're you're going to get another penalty and we're going to lose the game I, I i now skate over to them and i say hey look man i know the calls haven't been going your way you're really frustrated but we need you on the team and if you take another penalty um you're not going to be on the ice and you're one of our better players and uh take your anger and put it into your legs and you know by meaning that Instead of yelling at people and taking penalties, skate harder. Just fucking skate harder. And that's what I try to do when I'm really angry out there on the ice, is I just try to put it into my legs, into how hard I play, without it going over that line where I'm demeaning somebody, I'm trying to injure them, um it the the hardest thing to do when we're scared is to show vulnerability and humility because it feels like then we're just absolutely going to be destroyed but that is the only in my opinion that is the only thing that can't be thrown away in trying to bring about change yeah there there there's times to um there i'm not saying being angry is ever wrong but the way that you express anger needs to be thought about Think of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. There's no way they would have ever gotten the world or the people in the middle on their side if they hadn't been so non-threatening, if they hadn't been vulnerable, if they hadn't showed their humanity, if they hadn't been humble. And now is the time Take that risk and show people that you disagree. And I'm talking to both sides now. Show people that you, because there's a good chance four years from now, everything's going to be flipped. And you're still going to be living with that person. Try to be vulnerable and humble and express your feelings in a way that is constructive. If it's appropriate, compliment the person that you disagree with, maybe on a point they made or something they support. Try to find common ground. I do not want to see our country devolve into civil war. And I think there is, I feel like we're at the precipice right now where it could, if I know this sounds new agey and hippie-ish, but if love and compassion is abandoned for self-righteousness, we're fucked. We are fucked. But on a personal level, nobody can take away your dignity or your self-esteem. They can take away your rights. They can take away your freedom. But they can't take away your dignity. The way you react is always up to you and i'm not perfect and no actually i am actually i am perfect no now that i think about it i'm a i'm an idiot um but i like to think that i at least try to learn when i make mistakes and i try to clean up my mess and i try to do these things that i'm that i'm talking about and the reason that i know they work is because my life has gotten better when I started doing these things. People who are survivors, you might feel like it, but you are not invisible. Stay close to each other. The compassion that you deserve, and this goes for, for immigrants, people in the LGBTQ community, um, people of faiths that are being Threatened. The compassion that you deserve may never come from some people, but find the ones who do have that compassion because your honesty and your vulnerability are your greatest weapon. That's what sways those people in the middle. I've never felt good a day after a fight, but I have after I've apologized when I'm wrong. I feel clean in whatever direction this country heads in let's try to feel clean about ourselves and right now is not going to last forever especially if we just put our heads down and fucking skate and that's a hockey term I don't mean put your head down in terms of bowing Um, just focusing on the task and Sometimes the path to something better starts with a hundred yards of dog shit in the rain. But that shitty path, that shitty portion of the path might motivate someone to make a better path in the future. Don't forget to hydrate, wear sunscreen, use your turn signal, return your cart, and shorten your fucking outgoing message and I'm off my soapbox and to the surveys. I so want to go back and erase every fucking second of that. I think I sounded pompous. I think I sounded condescending. Um, I think I repeated myself 900 times. I'm afraid you're all going to leave me. I won't know uh, what to do for uh, a job. I'll have no meaning and purpose in my life. And I will not only be Pushing a shopping cart, I'll be living in a shopping cart. Welcome to my head. Give me a break, who is a teenager, uh, shares about her anorexia. My current goal is to eat so little I faint during normal activities. Snapshot from her life. I, I decided to be proud of my body and wear a tight shirt. As soon as I put it on, I felt disgusted at how I looked and immediately put on my big flannel that hides my body. Nobody should be seeing that. It's So that's heartbreaking. And it's so common. God, so many people hate their bodies. Any comments to make the podcast better? Not a suggestion, but wondering what you struggle with. Um, there's two things you can... Uh, probably the best thing to do is uh, to listen to the, the uh, episode where I'm interviewed. Uh, I think it was like a year ago, maybe two years ago. Um, but briefly... My psych- my psychiatrist calls it uh, treatment-resistant depression due to childhood adversity. Um, I struggle with alcoholism and various addictions, including drugs and pornography. As a kid, I experienced covert incest, and I was lightly molested by an older kid in our neighborhood when I was 11 and he was 15. And um, what does lightly molested mean? I can't really, uh, it just feels like that was the right term. That just feel, uh, molested seems too heavy, uh, but brushing the whole thing off doesn't feel right. And lightly, I think, uh, makes it sound a little classy. Uh, Yeah, we both had had on tuxedo shirts. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, uh, I love this fucking name. The name is uh, she calls herself trying to take a soundless shit in the school bathroom while I stare at a warrior research study ad worrying that I'm not enough of a warrior to participate in it. I will give you a thousand dollars if you legally change your name to that. And I gotta say the soundless shit is the siren song of the people pleaser. I have taken so many soundless shit or struggle to take a soundless shit in public bathrooms it's not funny her issues are i like how i go from laughter to her issues are ptsd and being a sex crime victim um her struggle in a sentence about ptsd asking my boyfriend what it's like to have a good dream god that is heartbreaking oh my god about being a sex crime victim high school reunions are great because you can shake hands with the boys who chased you and tore your clothes off great to see you. It's been so long. Snapshot from her life. When the school board said that we'd learn more about teamwork if they organized our tables into a group of four, they probably did not realize that the kitchen table my, uh, that the kitchen hyphen tabled my bullying. In grade six, I now had the concentrated trifecta of abuse because of this uh, well-intentioned seating strategy. Across from me sat the boy who put his foot on my vagina under the table. Beside me sat the boy who scratched ugly into my arm with a dull pencil. And Diagonal was the guy who could now read me the poem he wrote about how I should hang myself from the rafters in the classroom. When I asked the teacher to move me to a different seat, she told me that it was good for me to learn how to deal with my issues. This, 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 is why I'm doing this on this episode. This and so many other surveys that I've read. Imagine, imagine what she felt hearing somebody laugh about grabbing somebody by the vagina. sending you some love I gotta tell you I'm fucking terrified I am terrified I but I feel like this is the way that it's this podcast is supposed to be I got a beautiful email from a minister who shared with me the exact same thing. He lives in a conservative town. And he, while he's not able to talk politics from a pulpit because that's uh, a non-profit status, you lose your nonprofit profit status if you discuss that, he wanted to talk about the social issues that were being uh, bandied about in the, uh, in the race and morals and values and stuff like that. And he confessed to me that he couldn't because he was too afraid of... Um, incurring the wrath of his congregation. This is going to be a long episode, by the way. We're at uh, over two hours, and I have about an inch of uh, surveys. I was about to say uh, an inch of something else, and uh, this felt like maybe not the right moment to make a dick joke megan describes her depression everyone else is discussing different flavors and how good food is but food all tastes the same to me it doesn't taste like anything about being a sex crime victim i feel as if my body is only good for other people's pleasure i feel like it doesn't belong to me snapshot from her life looking at other kids playing and laughing at recess wondering how they were enjoying themselves and not in fear i remember wondering remember wondering what i did wrong that's when i began to hate myself and blame myself which is what most of us survivors do. And I also have to say, I know I've said this a thousand times uh, on the podcast, but this is the the forum for me to be honest. Uh, I'm feeling like a hypocrite right now. Um, I'm feeling like I have no right to be standing up um, for uh, women because I've mistreated women in the past. Um, because, uh, sometimes I get pretty deep into pornography. And while I don't think pornography is bad per se, um, I feel like some of it is exploitive. And I know that things that I have gotten off on have an exploitive component to them. And I feel shame about that. And it's something that I struggle with. Um, So if I sound like a broken record, um, I don't mean to. I just want... I just want honesty. And I don't want to portray myself as somebody who is above this. I just want more compassion in our world. I just want more compassion in our world. Oh, mean DJ voice. This is not the time. Coming up with a rock block, please? Mean DJ voice? I'm a little sad. Rocktober's over. All right, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Girl in the World. I'm so in my fucking head right now. Uh, One time I slept with a guy just because he liked classical music. Fantastic. Disordered dissection. Shares about her ADD, doing everything and nothing at the same time. About her alcoholism. How do you drink from a box of wine with your pinky up? I don't know, quickly. About her love addiction. If you don't want me, I will make you want me and then leave. If you want me, I feel sorry for you and your wife because our lives will change forever. In both cases, I am the victim at my own hand. About her sex addiction. Stealing batteries from work for my vibrator. That's kind of fantastic. Uh, about, I should not be laughing at, uh, sex addiction, but I struggle with it. So, uh, how's that for me? Make an excuse about her OCD. Uh, not being able to sleep in, uh, not being able to sleep if there are dishes in the sink and late for work because my cat just pooped and the litter box must remain empty for me to concentrate at the office about her PTSD, having instant diarrhea when someone knocks at my front door. The UPS man is used to me opening the door with a knife in one hand and accepting my Amazon Prime package with the other. <sighs> I just I, I just wish society at general could understand how unsafe some people are. how unsafe they feel and really how little they need in the way of other people being considerate towards them for the world to feel significantly safer. Just a little bit of compassion. Webber's shares an awfulsome moment. My dad was physically and emotionally abusive when I was a kid. It used to hurt that my abusive dad would tell my sisters and I he didn't love us and wish we'd never been born. Then I realized as a young adult that it was the best thing he could have done. It means I've never confused abuse with love, even at my most self-loathing. I don't always know what love looks or feels like, but at least I know when it's abuse. That's something. Wow, that is awfulsome. And for those of you that are new, um, uh, awful-some is a is a word... Uh, we we use for a moment that was awful at the time, but in hindsight, something's either kind of good or um, funny in a fucked up way. Creepazoid, who is gender fluid, shares about uh, experiencing racial or cultural bias. Uh, Latina, only when you want to fuck me. Thank you for that. Delusional happiness. Shares about her anxiety. When someone at work wants to talk, uh, my first thought is, I'm getting fired, even though I did nothing wrong. Leaky bum bum. <laughs> That's one of my favorite to- tropical drinks. Um, oh, when they put that brown rum. Oh. Uh, she shares about her anxiety. Uh, it's a health anxiety. Constant, Constantly having symptoms, anticipating symptoms, researching symptoms, overcoming symptoms, identifying new symptoms, worrying when there aren't symptoms, and therefore, I've missed a deadly silent killer. Uh, comments to make the podcast better. A health anxiety guest would be great. Um, uh, go to the uh, search box on our website. Not to be confused with the Amazon search box, and uh, type in hypochondria uh, and see what uh, see what comes up and that works for any episode you're you 're looking for. Happy moment filled out by still here and she writes, "I was in the car coming back from New South Wales after spending all day looking for farms to buy with my parents. I was very suicidal, but as we were driving back to Queensland. The sky was a beautiful combination of orange and pink, and I was listening to Tracy Chapman's fast car and I realized I didn't want to die in that moment. sometimes I think that's that's success man when we're when we're in depression, I've had days where it's like, yeah, I didn't want to kill myself today. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Cool, who is a trans female, and she she uh, is by in her 40s. Raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and uh, never reported it. I was sexually abused by an uncle when I was four or five. My slightly older brother acted out his being abused on me. Um, and because I have so many surveys, I'm mostly just going to be reading uh, excerpts from all of these surveys. Darkest Secrets. I've really, really struggled with depression, a lack of boundaries, all kinds of compulsions and addictions. I experimented with my gender and identity as a, quote, two-spirit, a Native American who is gender-fluid or genderqueer. I've cheated on my spouse and past partners once with a man and I long to experiment with gender play and gender-fluid sexual play again. My deepest secret is that if I had the money, I would spend gobs of it on gender surgery and facial feminization. I would love to look as feminine and pretty and desirable as I can, as I can sometimes imagine myself. This fills me with deep shame, uh, and I've shared this with my wife, and it nearly caused her to leave me. Uh, I think I'm, I'm not understanding why you're feeling shame um, is making yourself is is having surgery um, why that would be something to be ashamed of maybe I, I miss something. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Um, Being cuckolded, cheated on, forced to be with guys, gender play, being feminine or feminized, and desired by faceless guys. Uh, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, I'd tell them to hold on, to find the good in yourself. Meditate, walk, run, and live for now. Thank you for that. Great advice. Incognita creepa shares an awfulsome moment. I was recently discussing my childhood sexual abuse with my best friend, a gay man who had an alcoholic father and a codependent mother. He and I have discussed it many, many times. However, this time he asked me a question that I had never thought about before. My brother abused me from the ages of 8 to 12. I got my period at 11, so things slowed down then. The theme of where the fuck were my parents? Why was no one there? Why didn't anyone notice anything? Why don't I have any memories of my mother from this time? It's come up often, even in therapy. So this time, my friend asked me, what was going on in your parents' lives, specifically your mom's at that time? I suddenly realized that all this was going on when my grandmother was dying from cancer. She died when I was 11. So that's where my parents were. I said, oh my fucking God, Nana was dying. And then I just sobbed and sobbed. And my friend held me. I felt relief, anger, sadness, and pity all at the same time. I also felt like my inner child was finally fully heard after screaming for 24 years. Wow. That is fucking deep and beautiful. And if I had one, I would give you an unfrosted pop turnt. Chum Bucket. By the way... I went to the grocery store today, all excited to get some unfrosted Pop-Tarts. I always have this like ridiculous fantasy that there's going to be uh, unfrosted other than strawberry. I don't even remember the last time I saw unfrosted blueberry. And um, it's almost like the person that has an abusive... Uh, Partner or family member and you just keep expecting to go there and things are going to be different and so I go there and there's not only not any uh, blueberry but there's no strawberry there's none there's no unfrosted pop tarts and um, I punched everybody that was within six feet of me I don't think that was probably the way to handle it but it felt really good and um <laughs> chocolate frosted pop tarts what are you a fucking animal how is that good chocolate's great chocolate and something else chumbucket69 shares about uh, their agender age and they share about their anxiety scared out of my mind that I will be harassed for my identity as trans now that Drumpf has taken over. i I'm scared as a white male. White male. White male. I can't imagine what other people are feeling. And please don't mistake this as me supporting any other candidate. Although, you know what? That's not technically right because, you know, I told you a couple of episodes ago that I was because I did not like either candidate um that I was not going to vote. I got some emails from you guys saying, you know, how how dare you not vote and I said I li- I don't live in a swing state and uh, this state is going to go blue. So, it's my protest vote. And then when I got to the voting booth, I realized I want to, I don't want, how do I put this? I wanted to be able to vote for the first female candidate, even though there's many things about her that I didn't like. But I also wanted the popular vote to go against somebody who thinks that being a sexual predator is something to brag about and is funny. And so I did wind up um, voting for her. I'm so in my head right now. Violet shares about her depression. A sensory deprivation tank that you never want to leave. Wow, that is good. That is good. No, really, I'm just tired, shares about experiencing racial or cultural bias. Being of Middle Eastern descent, but everyone assumes I'm Hispanic since I live in Southern California, so they assume it's okay to say things to me like, so what do you think about all these filthy Arabs taking over our city? So sorry, you have to experience that. This is the, uh, from the uh, Babysitter Survey, and this is filled out by L.W., and um, she writes once when I was a uh, once when I was uh, at a classmate's. I don't know why she filled this out on the babysitter thing, um, but she writes nothing happened in my experience being babysat or babysitting. But once I was at a classmate's house when her parents were gone, she and a couple of other girls and maybe me did some inappropriate tickling with her little brother that has always bothered me. Uh, I think I was kind of stunned that the situation was getting so out of hand. We girls were maybe seven or so, I'm not really sure, and the boy a few years younger. He was giggling and laughing, but it felt like we were ganging up on him and exploiting him and like things were just out of control. His pants got yanked down at one point and he was naked. I feel really bad about this now. I remember myself as an onlooker, but also right there, not trying to divorce myself from the situation either. I thought it was very weird um, uh, looking back, uh, I never talked about it with anyone. I mostly forgot about it until I was at a take back the night march in college and survivors were sharing their stories and it occurred to me that I had done something bad myself. And I'll say what I always say, uh, which is, uh, you were a child and that doesn't mean that damage wasn't done to him, but, um, forgive yourself and the fact that you're aware of that. You know, I was having a conversation with a woman who had experienced um, sexual abuse as a child, and she was, was in her, I want to say like her early 20s, somewhere somewhere in her 20s, maybe even her mid-20s or late 20s, and she uh, had sex with a 16-year-old boy, and And this is an extremely compassionate person, a sensitive, compassionate person that I was talking to. And I don't remember if I said something or she could tell by the look on my face that she suddenly realized the gravity of what she had done and that that is not really um, an even power balance and and she's such a good person that she immediately owned it and I think what i'm what I'm saying is the important thing is that we own our mistakes. we don't spend the rest of our lives unnecessarily beating ourselves up about it, but we learn from it, and going forward, maybe we take that information about where we came up short and we use it to try to make the world a better place and i'd like to think that this podcast helps people do that because i read so many things where people um are just filled with self-hatred and can't forgive themselves for things they've done um and they're and they're no longer doing these things and it's like a prison of our own making. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Mama Mia mania. And I actually think this is a kind of a happy moment. But recently my mania has been totally crushing me. My mind has been racing. I've been having slight auditory hallucinations. And by 3 p.m. I'm so irritable being around people. Um, it's difficult. Uh, To cope, I usually listen to podcasts on my way home to work. Yours has literally saved me, so I can't thank you enough. This particular Friday morning, I decided I needed some music to cope with the mixed episode I was starting to feel. I think the different parts of mania in addition to hopelessness, sadness, and self-hate. I'd also been thinking a lot about my grandma who housed me when my home was too destructive to be in. We were very close, and she passed away about a month ago unexpectedly. One of my favorite memories with her, one she talked about a lot... Was seeing Mamma Mia in Vegas this day. When I turned my music on, I had no idea uh, what would be helpful, so I chose a playlist with a positive and upbeat label. Wouldn't you know it? The first song to come on was "Dancing Queen" by ABBA, a song famously known for being in Mamma Mia. I immediately started crying. I'm not sure what I believe in in terms of an afterlife, but I knew at this moment I somehow was meant to hear this song. It didn't take the mixtape. Uh, it didn't take the mixed episode away. But it made it that much easier to deal with. Love you, Graham. And then a little heart. Thank you for that. Only Smoke shares a a snapshot from her life um, involving her uh, PTSD. I experienced a traumatic event at work last year. I actually feel like a fraud saying this, and I don't or won't connect with the word trauma, but clinically this is how it's been described. I'm not through this yet, and writing it out feels very self-indulgent and inappropriate, so I'll keep it vague. I wasn't hurt or attacked, but I saw something violent that had been done to another person. It's almost been a year, 11 months to the day in fact, and I can't believe I'm still shaking when I'm writing this. I feel physically sick to my stomach, and the guilt is overwhelming most of the time. One of the worst aspects of this for me has been not knowing how to let people in to help me. I've carried this more or less alone, with the, inv- the invaluable exceptions of uh, my talking therapist and EMDR practitioner, uh, and it, it is so fucking heavy. I've had depression for many years, but never knew it was possible to be so low and so weighed down. Triggers for me are doors, opening it to discover the incident, which I find hard to explain and feel stupid. As someone who works in mental health, I know I am a compassionate person but doesn't e- who doesn't ever make these judgments of others, but for me, I find it incredibly hard to see anything but judgment. I could have done more. I'm overreacting. I should be over it by now. My sleep and dreams have been horrendous. I've had nightmares and insomnia my whole life throughout... Uh, childhood to today, but again, I've never known anything like this. I'm happy to say, I feel. Uh, I'm happy to say, I feel with this fantastic support of my colleagues and therapists and friends and family to some extent that I am getting better. I no longer think of this as my life all the time. There are days when I feel depressed now, instead of a constant depressive mood. I dissociate frequently instead of constantly. I have terrifying nightmares, but now about but not about the incident anymore. This still fucking sucks. It's still the shittiest experience of my fucking life, but it's getting better. I would imagine so many people can relate to that, whether it was... Because, um, you know, that's the classic thing when somebody has experienced sexual uh, assault or trauma is it's not a, as bad as other people's. You know, I'm making too big of a deal. And I went through that for years. I still go, th- go through that. And... I don't know if that voice ever completely goes away, but it it can get quieter. But I think it really takes talking to other people, um, and feeling their compassion and empathy. At least that's, that's helped me. And I'm glad you're starting to feel better because look at your symptoms. What? The, the body doesn't lie. Uh, this guy calls himself that one co-worker with the bad breath and permanent sweat stains on his armpit. Uh, I got to tell you, if that's not a match.com username, I do not know what is. About his alcoholism and drug addiction. I wish my, quote, Monday self and, quote, Friday, Saturday self would get together and form a truce before we run this ship into an iceberg. Uh, I so relate to that, by the way. Uh, about his body dysmorphia, depression, and anxiety. If I eat too much in one sitting, I can literally feel my body storing extra calories into fat reserves in my man tits so so that I get obese, then don't get a promotion, then die in the caboose of a 3 a.m. southbound L train covered in piss-soaked newspapers. If I didn't eat much and was productive at work, then I feel like Michael Phelps winning gold medal while having sex, all while smoking opium out of one of those fancy Chinese ornate pipes from the 1800s. You didn't mention uh, comfy pillows. I got to say, I think that is that is one of the biggest selling points to ever going into an opium den. Um, those pillows look so good. I did smoke opium once. And I wish I could say it wasn't good. It was fucking amazing. And I'm so glad there wasn't... I was 16. And it's the only time it ever came through our neighborhood. And I'm glad it didn't come through more. Uh, Snapshot from his life. Letting a guy give me head just so I could feel wanted and be the center of attention. After I came, I not so subtly hinted that I wanted him to leave. He cried and left. Reading this... I know that I am the epitome of a selfish male pig stereotype, but have no idea how to change. First of all, I think you're probably being too hard on yourself. And the epitome of a selfish male pig stereotype would be to not reflect on it at all. So you are not. You're human, just like the rest of us. Missing myself. Uh, uh, about compulsive behaviors. Not sure if this counts, but whenever I cry, I self-harm by burning myself with hair straighteners. It works as the perfect antidote, except it doesn't. Uh, some, that Her words. Is sometimes I cry, so I have the excuse to self-harm. About her experiencing derealization. Waking up and not knowing if I'm still dreaming. Uh, about her experiencing Depersonalization touching my face in the reflection and still not believing it's a real thing, let alone me, about her experiencing dissociation. Um, feeling so overwhelmed that I totally check out. The trapdoor is open and I've fallen through, except I'm not falling. I'm floating outside of my head and above the conversation. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? Um, More content about PTSD that's outside of sexual assault or vets. I believe uh, these are incredible value and important things to talk about. Um, I absolutely agree. Uh, she's also asking for some episodes on personality disorder. Um, again, I would use the search box of, uh, of the website. Uh, I know we've had a lot of episodes about PTSD, um, but uh, some of them are not coming to um, to mind right now, and yeah. Bad luck, Cassie. Shares an awfulsome moment. Yesterday there was a parade in downtown due to the Day of the Dead. The street was crowded and I was walking home with my boyfriend and friends when I looked in front of me there was my ex-boyfriend, the one who sexually abused me 4 years ago at my 18th birthday party. The one I thought was dead since he seemed to disappear even on social media and I was really glad I I wouldn't ever I would never see him again. He was walking with his new girlfriend and looked me in the eye. We stared at each other for probably 3 seconds until Uh, He passed us. I felt dizzy and nauseous and told my boyfriend that it was him. So he hugged me and kissed me. Then I changed the topic and went home to cry as soon as I closed the door. I had a panic attack, more nausea, stomach ache, and only slept one hour after finding his new Facebook account, realizing he was real and blocking him. Today I got up for work, still feeling sick, thinking of how I'd be able to get out of my house from now on, guessing that maybe if I go straight to work, then college, and back home, it wouldn't happen. On the way to work, my dad was driving when there was a red light. Right in front of me, there he was. My ex-boyfriend and abuser, piece of shit, crossing the street right in front of me. What are the chances? That's my fucking luck. At least he didn't see me this time. I don't think I don't think it's any coincidence that there's a lot of surveys filled out this week by people being triggered out in public. Linnea? Linea? Linnea? Uh gives us a snapshot of her uh, eating disorder and dysmorphia. At 14, sitting on the other side of the door pretending I wasn't home, crying while my friends knocked because I was too fat and ugly to go outside. One eye is higher than the other and everyone will be able to see it. I gained half a pound and everyone will know when they look at me. Sending you some love. Tired of this shit. Filled out a shame and secret survey. Uh, They're gender fluid. They're pansexual, 19. Raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, Was sexually abused and never reported it been emotionally abused. My mother used to call me names when I stood up for myself. I've always been independent and never wanted to give her the satisfaction of having control over me. Her excuse for treating me like her property instead of like a person is our Hispanic heritage. Years after the abuse stopped, I still heard her voice in my my head when I was having panic attacks. The sad thing is that this is my second year of college and she still has control over my actions. I wish I could tell myself, fuck it, but I'm a wimp. I've not moved out of the house because I don't want to make her unhappy. However, staying there makes me feel like I am breathing toxic air. I can't breathe. I find myself constantly crying because I am still there. I like to think I'm rebellious and independent and spontaneous, but the unfortunate truth is that I am someone who seeks to please their parents, especially their mother. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My mom has improved, but years later, the consequences of her abusive actions still linger. I am one of the most pessimistic people ever. I am too afraid to move to the place I have always dreamed of living in. I'm getting married this year, and I feel terrible because this means I'm moving away. My mother loves me, but cannot show affection in a healthy manner. I don't blame her. I am her only child. You know, a way to start having compassion for yourself might be to imagine yourself in her shoes and you as and her as your daughter and ask yourself, would I be doing the same thing to my daughter? Then why is it okay for your mom to do it to you? And your mom, you can wish like crazy for your mom to change. You can try to drop hints that your mom needs to change, but you're going to drive yourself crazy asking her to change. The only thing you have within your control is to say, when this happens, it makes me feel like this to her. And if this happens, again, I'm going to have to do this, which might mean not talk to you for a while, not return your phone call, not come to Thanksgiving dinner, get up and leave. Whatever it is that you decide you're going to do, that is where your power lies. And that is the only place in your relationship with your mother you're going to be able to find any strength. Because your mother is probably not ready to see how she's affecting you. She probably has a warped view of what love, how love expresses itself. but you're not alone. November shares an uh, awfulsome moment. Um, Oh, fucking, I meant to look this up. She she writes, I have CVS, anxiety and ADD. All right, now I got to fucking Google what CVS is. You guys are right here. I know the pharmacy is going to come up. God damn it. Cyclic vomiting syndrome. Okay. Sudden repeated attacks of severe nausea and vomiting. Okay. I should have done that before this. Refrain from beating myself up. Uh... I also have a long list of ear problems. When I was first coming to terms with my CVS, I was vomiting at school. Someone walked into the room and says, Hey, you all right? You sound like you're vomiting up Satan. I go to an all-girl Catholic high school. I was laughing so hard, I was crying and vomiting all at the same time. That is fantastic. That might be Hall of Fame. New listener gives us a snapshot of uh, her depression. Spending four days dreading, avoiding, and worrying about a call I have to make even though I know it will only take a minute. Literally feeling depressed because I don't understand why I am depressed when I don't have anything to be depressed about. Good childhood, no abuse, no trauma, no substance abuse from me or anyone close to me. I can only remember being bullied once and it wasn't even that bad. Why do I feel like this? I feel like I don't deserve to have the diagnosis depression without a cause. My depression and my anxiety are best friends. They come hand in hand and use the other to build oneself up. Before I started on antidepressants, I would cry almost every day and I thought that I was just sensitive. I still am, but only cry when there is a sensible reason, almost. Um... I, it doesn't matter why we're feeling the way we are. The point is, what can we do to manage the way we're feeling and to work towards feeling better? And I don't know why we do this. And I'm just like you, by the way. I don't know why we do this about depression or anxiety, but we do. Don't do it about diabetes. You know, when we're diagnosed with diabetes, diabetes, um, we accept it. You know, maybe it's because they're, they're, we don't think that our symptoms we don't think of our symptoms as data, as believable data. And um, is that a reflection of society? At large, still thinking of mental illness as weakness, of people not trying hard enough? Probably. Um, but keep working on yourself. You may find out that there was something. You may not. You may find that there was just neglect. Speaking of ne- neglect, uh, listen to the episode about emotional neglect uh, with Dr. Janice Webb. Uh, that episode has helped so many people who have just described what you have described. But even if there wasn't emotional neglect, it just might be genetic. Magda writes about her depression, trying to be upbeat and functional while wanting to crawl in a hole and die. Oh my God, that is so fucking dead on. About her alcoholism, and and drug addiction, forgetting how you felt in the morning once five o'clock hits, oh my god, you are inside my head, camping, Ah, about her bulimia, death worship, a private little world of self-torture that somehow feels like the safest place to be, snapshot from her life, I want so badly to be upbeat and supportive and loving with my students, but whenever my medication is out of my system, for whatever reason, my personality completely flips, one of my freshmen jokingly asked me after I reprimanded them a little too harshly, why don't you love us anymore? And my heart broke. I wonder if you thought of it, uh, you know, the way uh, a diabetic would if all of a sudden they didn't have enough insulin or they had too much insulin. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't shame. You wouldn't shame a diabetic. Trauma loves me. Um, shares an awfulsome moment, um, and just uh, I'm just going to read part of this. Um, kind of fast forward to a part of it. Um, she uh, has been diagnosed with BPD and PTSD, and um, she was trying to find uh, a place to get treatment, a new place to get treatment, and apparently one of the uh, therapists there thought that she was a threat to herself or others. And, uh, she writes, So I was forced into an ambulance. My possessions were taken. I pissed in a cup, had blood drawn, and sat in the ER till 3 in the morning. And the cherry on top, I don't have fucking health insurance. I don't cry in public, but every time treatment was forced on me, through sobs, I kept telling them I have no way to pay for this. I just wanted a referral. Please let me go home. Sounds like a pretty traumatic night, right? Fuck yeah. It was, but what made it kind of awesome is since I do have a personality dis- personality disorder, I charmed every nurse, nurse's and doctor's ass off because my intuition is why I'm alive, and I instantly know what they want to hear. Not just medically, but I made sure they would remember me because I would make them believe I was damn special. So thank you, BPD. I talked to this nurse for hours about being from an immigrant background, got to hear about her kids, talk about our lives, and have a beautiful human connection with her. And for the first time, I noticed some strength in my disorder and how it can help me take care of myself when violated by asshole therapists who are bored and need to throw a stable 21-year-old girl into an ambulance, sometimes an identity that is just... Sometimes an identity that is just an extension of someone else's and effortless manipulation can make some great memories. Thank you for sharing that. Oh my God, we passed the three-hour mark and I didn't even get to see Herbert's butthole. We probably got about 15 more surveys. Daytime Pajamas shares about uh, her codependency. I deeply resent you, not realizing how resentful I obviously have a right to feel Uh, about living with an abuser. He gave me the tiniest scraps, and I behaved like I had been invited to a feast. Thank you for that. Professional Complainer shares about overeating. Uh, their gender fluid. I would rather get full to the point of feeling like I'm going to burst than to leave food on the table and be reminded of the starving kids all over the world. A snapshot from uh, their life, telling my mother halfway through the meal that I am full and she tells me to stop. Little does she know that the voice in my head won't let me. Look, you piece of ungrateful shit, just finish your food. This is the only way you can give back to the world. I wonder if you shared with your mom that that voice was in your head, if that would help. I don't know. You didn't write enough for us to understand if your mom is uh, an open-minded, compassionate person or not. But um, it's really hard to get better when we just try to do it with the very brain that is hurting us. All right. Mm-hmm. This is a uh, happy moment, and this is filled out by Rainbow Sherbert's butthole. And he writes, uh, The podcast helped me identify my childhood of emotional neglect through the facade of my physically present but divorced parents. I have now been seeing a therapist and let go of the idea that, quote, I wasn't messed up enough to deserve help in sifting through my struggle to have a healthy, emotional, and meaningful relationship. My thoughts were just too scattered to harness in my own. They were starting to eat me up from the inside out. So the happy moment is basically the rest of my life trying to be the sensitive person that I really am through therapy and the pursuit of vulnerability and connection. Oh, I just want to shoot off a cannon of confetti after reading that. Um, Sad old lady, uh, who is, this is a shame and secret survey. She is uh, asexual in her 60s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And um, she... Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported. I was about eight and the neighbor boy, about 13, lured me into his garage and stuck his hand in my pants until I had an orgasm. Um, Darkest secrets. This is no secret, but everyone should know. I am 70 years old and only from listening uh, to your podcast have I come to see what Uh, that early sexual awakening has done to the rest of my life. I want everyone that listens to you to know that getting help early is necessary. Don't wait until you are an old person with very few years left. Get help so you don't fuck up your whole life like I did. Thank you for sharing that. I'm in my head a little bit now thinking that maybe I'm uh, tooting the podcast horn a little too much in this episode, but... Um, you're going to hate me for so many other reasons. You'll probably forget that one in your strongly worded email to me. Um, this is filled out by channeling OCD into witchcraft. Um,. About her depression, and she's a teenager. Uh, What's the point of getting out of bed today if I know I might not be able to do it tomorrow? Um, About her PTSD, just smelling the same cologne he wore ruins my whole ability to process anything. About being a sex crime victim. I want my partner to abuse me because I still know deep down it's all my fault and I'll always deserve it about experiencing misophonia, I literally need to harm myself when I hear chewing, saliva, or repetitive clicking, or else I will hurt someone else. It brings me so much shame. Snapshot from her life. My boyfriend, my boyfriend ordered pizza as a surprise for me. He takes great care to not chew with his mouth open or make any kind of smacking sound. He's chewing so slowly and carefully, but I can still hear the saliva moving in his mouth and the crunch of the crust, and all I can think of is punching through the window next to me until there's enough room for me to jump out. It's pure blind rage. He sees the distress on my face and looks devastated, apologizing over and over. I feel like an abuser, and I can't control it. I assure him it's okay. Wait a few minutes and casually excuse myself to the bathroom, to punch my legs until they go numb and I feel better wow that is so intense it is so intense and I don't know if I said uh, uh, I might have referred uh, to them as uh, she but uh, their agender so apologies if I if I did that thank you for thank you for sharing that All right, now I'm. Now I'm doing an on-the-fly edit. Two. There, this person, uh, this guy, calls himself Too, spelled T W O. Um, about his depression, dysthymia feels like being in your least favorite high school class twenty-four-seven. Oh my God, that is perfect. Rain H. Uh, who's gay and uh, between 10 and 15 years old, shares about her anxiety. An electric current running through me, ready to spark at any time. About her anorexia. Hating being healthy and hating feeling unhealthy. Um, snapshot from her life. I'm at a party and everyone is having a good time, but all I can think about is how much food I can eat. That... That that has to feel so fucking isolating. I remember when I used to be that way with alcohol. You know, I'd be at a, a dinner with my wife and, and friends and everybody would be talking and I would be half participating in the conversation, but the other half of my brain the entire time was wondering, am I going to be able to get enough wine to get that euphoria I need to live without looking like an alcoholic in front of these people. Um, Dancing on my grave shares about being a sex crime victim. I'm afraid that the only time I will ever uh, have felt physically uh, pleasured was when I was being sexually assaulted. And from now on, all consensual sex acts will have all the excitement of a balloon deflating. Healing from sexual assault Or sexual abuse is a really long and complicated process. And for a lot of us, it does affect our sexuality. It does affect what turns us on. But my experience in going to support groups and therapy and doing a lot of intensive work is that while some of those fantasies are still there, People with misophonia must have just torn their headphones out from that noise that I just made. Um, It is possible to heal to the point where intimacy is possible and sexually fulfilling. I hope that makes sense. But it takes a concerted effort. But it is doable. And I've seen it happen for many, many people but for me it it was way harder than getting sober from alcohol and drugs um learning how to be intimate and I'm still learning how to be intimate Bezel Bob Bezel blob shares about his anxiety. The only safe place is anywhere i'm not. God, that is fucking genius and this this is a shame and secret survey, but there's a um there's a happy moment at the end uh, to me. Um, this is from Emotional Donor, and she was um, never sexually abused, but she was physically, um, physically and emotionally abused. Uh, oh, I also wanted to read this. Um, she writes, No, I've never been sexually abused, um, but I've always felt very strangely about a particular uncle. I have vivid memories of catching him looking at me with what can only be described as lust during my pubescent years. I specifically remember how fucking horrible it made me feel. And I believe it to be the origin of my very potent self-hatred and low self-worth. And what I wanted to remind people is that sexual harm can be physical, it can be verbal, it can be visual, and it can be emotional. And they are all equally valid all of them because this is not about prosecuting that other person this is about healing the hurt and the degradation and the loss of dignity and innocence that we experienced Um, what if anything do you wish for I'm a nurse, which I believe to be my calling. I'm constantly learning, teaching, and researching to provide the best possible care that I can, both preventatively and therapeutically. I consider my role to be a privilege and an extremely important one, one where mistakes just cannot be made. Every decision and move is critically thought out and has the potential to be life-enhancing. That being said, I'm devastated at the amount of shitty fucking healthcare providers in this country. How they pass the board exams, I do not know. I'm also perplexed why someone would go into healthcare that doesn't possess basic empathy and interest in helping others. At my previous job, they called me uh, the psych whisperer because all of our patients that were admitted for psychiatric reasons or simply had a mental illness in addition to their current diagnoses would essentially respond to me only. It was a comedic point of interest on our unit, except for the fact that I didn't find it funny. I believe that everybody deserves good medical care, and I fucking work hard to ensure that it happens. I also believe that everybody is reasonable on some level, and it's my duty to discover what level that is and what I can find to do it. People shouldn't be so easily shoved off and discarded. Everyone has something to offer, and it should be at least explored uh and it should at least be explored what that is. To summarize, I wish that I could somehow assure everybody that they would always obtain great medical and psychiatric care and consistently have empathetic, thorough, intelligent, and innovative healthcare providers. It is so important. Um, and I just wanted to say, I cannot overstate how important you are Because I, and I've shared this on the podcast before, but I had many moments when I was between nine and 12 years old where I had to have a really fucking humiliating surgery done on my testicles and was treated like a piece of meat. And I will never forget two nurses in particular, one, it was just a look that she gave me when I was in the middle of being treated by a piece of meat by a shitty doctor, and the look of compassion on her face for me made me cry. And the second nurse, when I was laid up in the hospital for about a week with leg casts, uh, an elastic band going into my testicle to keep it pull, keep pulling it down. And she would have to come in and bathe me and feed me. And she made me feel like the most important person in the world. She made me laugh. She sang songs to me. And I felt safe for, for those 10 minutes when she would come in. And do those things. And it meant the fucking world to me. And I just want to thank you for being one of those healthcare professionals. And I'm sure you don't get thanked enough. But you, I'm speaking to you as if you are the woman who was there for me Thank you so, so much. I wish I could remember your name so that I could look you up and thank you in person. Um, This is the last thing. And this is a happy moment uh, that Jen sent in. And... She writes, I had no idea I was making any progress with therapy until one evening I was talking with my husband. All of a sudden, he was very motivated to do a bunch of things, get a new, better-paying job, pay down our debt, look for a new house, finish his degree in finance. I asked him why all of a sudden did he want to do all these things at once. His reply, Jen, you have changed so much in the past months that the least I can do is try to make our lives a little better, too. I was totally puzzled. He continued, I've seen you battle your anxiety in a whole new way and sometimes win. You've stuck with the therapist for nine months now. You now have more space in your head for good things and can see it. I can see the work you do and it's amazing and I'm lucky to be your husband. I just started crying and he held me. I've been waiting for him to do all these things for a long time, and to know that I prompted it by working on me was overwhelming. The next therapy session, I told my therapist this, and she beamed. She thanked me for telling her that story because she doesn't get to hear successes often, and it was really appreciated. I swear I saw a tear in her eye. What are we at? Three hours and 17 minutes. Sweet mother of pearl. I hope this episode came across as I intended it to. I hope it comforted those of you who are scared and confused. And I hope you remember that you're not alone. This right now is not, not going to last forever and all we have control over is how we react to the things we don't have control over. Now let's just try to remember to do it with an open mind, compassion, empathy, patience, and dignity. Oh, that was fucking great, Paul. Can I jerk off? Oh, mean DJ voice. Just remember, you're not alone. Please. You're not alone. And thanks for listening.